My name is James Rowlands. In 2015, I teamed up with my friend Dan White to create the Dubbing Our podcast. Since then, we have been giving you everything that's happened on the WWE Network. Now, in 2018, not only are we live for the Big Four events and every NXT TakeOver, but we celebrate 20 years since the birth of the Attitude Era. Plus, every month we'll bring you 205 Live, collections, new content, W pay-per-views and latest news on the WWE Network. Until we've watched everything, we are with you and we are the WNR. Yes, hello, I am James Rowlands, and as always, I'm joined by... Dan White. And today, it's a very special episode, it's a WNR-175. Yes, 175 episodes we've done. Where does the time go? We've uh, had a drain and avoided Jarrett, and now we are stronger than ever. On this special episode, we have one of the most anticipated podcasts that WNR do. It's Controversial Characters Part 3! Now, we'll be going to some dark places, but hope to bring enough humour and some funny stories in our very best controversial characters. So, to give you a taste, here is the alternate intro. Advisory, the following lyrics contain explicit language. Shut your fucking face, Uncle Fucker. You're a cocksucking, ass licking, Uncle Fucker. You're an Uncle Fucker. Yes, it's true. Nobody fucks uncles quite like you. Shut your fucking face, Uncle Fucker. You're the one that fucked your uncle, Uncle Fucker. You don't eat or sleep on mole loin. Just fuck your uncle all day long. What's going on here, fucker? Fucker, Uncle Fucker, Uncle Fucker. Shut your fucking face, Uncle Fucker, Uncle Fucker. You're a bone-biting bastard, Uncle Fucker. You're an Uncle Fucker, I must say. We fucked your uncle yesterday, Uncle Fucker. That's you, N-C-L-E. Fuck you, Uncle Fucker. Suck my balls. I didn't hear any explicit language in that whatsoever, so sorry about that. Pointless advisory. Well, the controversial characters, we've done two episodes before, and basically what we do, we pick out controversial uh, people or events, or usually characters, obviously, but events as well that we look at. Uh, to On this episode, <laughs> there's, there's so much, but we're going to start with our first story, Dan. Yes, former WWE star Billy Jack Haynes is claiming that he was a witness to three-decade murder of the boys on the tracks in Alexander, Arkansas. And that is now coming forward with his story and what he saw. Two teenagers, Kevin Ives and Don Henry, were brutally killed on August 23rd, 1987. And the case went cold after the killer of killers were never found. Now, the local KARK4 News NBC affiliate in the area is reporting that Haynes has reached out to the parents of one of the boys and teamed up with an investigator to raise money to fund a private investigation into the murders. I come with no hidden voice. I come to you straight face to face because this is reality, man. Haynes said in the video post on YouTube. Don't hide nothing. 
Well, don't hide nothing is a double negative in itself. So actually he's hiding something then? Yes. Ooh. <coughs> well, Haynes, who apart from being a WWE star, also transported and trafficked through the United States. <laughs> that said, while on one of his jobs as a security for a drug money drop, he witnessed the two murders. Haynes said they were murdered by people who were working for the same Arkansas criminal politician he was providing security services for. He says, I'm standing here, put my life on the line, telling you like Cabrera will be killed, added the 64-year-old in the video. They have to be taken down. Three years ago, Haynes sued WWE for a Gregorious mistreatment wrestlers for its own benefit, as well as its concealment and denial of medical research and evidence concerning traumatic brain injuries suffered by WWE wrestlers. Yeah, and the full story is on kark.com. You can go there uh, and read it as well. It gets very dark. I mean, if we've got time at the end of the episode, we probably might come back to it and talk. But I, I want to start with uh, properly with gentleman Chris Adams. Uh, 1955-2001, age Chris Adams, best known to wrestling fans as the gentleman Chris Adams, was fatally shot on October 7th, 2001, during an altercation in his friend's Texas home. Reported as a drunken brawl, the shoot was Brent Beret Parnell, a fellow wrestler and friend of Adams. Parnell was ultimately acquitted of the charges of self-defence. Well, Chris Adams' early career, he was a three-time national judo champion in England, Many with Adams' background in combat, combat <coughs> many with Adams' backwards stick their nose up at professional wrestling. Chris Adams embraced it. A few months prior to his death, Adams told the Fort Worth Star Telegram, "It, or meaning professional wrestling, appealed to me. Theatrics mis- mixed with athletic ability." Adams wrestled briefly in England before emigrating to the States in the early 80s, and by '93, Adams was wrestling for Fritz von Erich's Texas-based territory. WCCW. Well, Chris Adams had a huge one with world class throughout the 80s, where he worked as both a heel and a face. Managed by the late Gary Hart, Adams would finish opponents off with a signature super kick, a move that was later adopted by Shawn Michaels. So, you talk about the impact he had on wrestling, Chris Adams actually came up with the super kick. Fans from the area no doubt recall Chris Adams partnered with the handsome half-breed Gino Hernandez forming a dynamic duo's tag team. The sports storming crowds came to it in droves to witness the Von Erich the dynamic duo, bringing big money for WCCW in the mid-80s. Now, one of the things we're going to do in controversial characters this episode that we haven't done in previous ones is that we're going to stop at certain points and then talk about another subject. So we've just mentioned Gino Hernandez. Dan, tell us about Hernandez. Well, on February the 4th, concerned with Hernandez's well-being, <coughs> on February the 4th, concerned with Hernandez's well-being, two world-class officials, Dave Manning and Rick Hazard, and several local law enforcement officers broke into his Highland Park apartment and found Hernandez dead. He had been dead for approximately two to three days. Initially, Hernandez's death was ruled as homicide case, but following autopsy reports, his death was a result... Re- his death was ruled as a result of an overdose of cocaine. Well, his cocaine addiction was no secret to many world-class mainstays, including manager Gary Hart, who tried to encourage him many times to drop the habit. On a DVD documentary, The Champ for Challenge of World-Class Championship Wrestling, Hart said that he had pictures of all the wrestlers he managed, except for Hernandez, because it made him touch with Gino. The syndicated world-class broadcaster... <coughs> the syndicated world-class broadcast... Scheduled for February the 15th airing, was scheduled to have aired a match involving Gino Hernandez, originally taped on January 24th, 
at the Dallas Sportatorium. The match never aired. Instead, announcer Bill Mercer made the announcement of Gino's death and a different match aired instead. Both Mercer and Mark Lawrence treated Hernandez's death as well as Chris Adams' blinding angles during a time when World Class was about to go forward with a feud beginning at Texas Stadium. Adams returned the following May and won the World Class Heavyweight Championship two months later. Adams also formed a tag team with Kerry Von Erich until Von Erich's suicide on February the 18th, 1993. Well, that what? so we what, how long are we in? Ten minutes and we've had, what, five deaths already? This is going to be a new record. <laughs> anyway, it's not about that. The American Airlines incident. Sign of trouble for Chris Adams were looming well before his death. In yeah. 1986, a flight attendant who claimed that Adams was belligerently drunk on a delayed American Airlines flight. After telling Adams to sit down in his seat, he told her, I make 25 times the money you do, and no one like you is going to tell me what to do. Adams proceeded to headbutt the co-pilot and picked up an assault conviction from a federal jury. The story goes that Adams had to be physically restrained by Kevin Von Erich. Well, Chris Adams' life had become a whirlwind prior to his death. He was awaiting trial on manslaughter charge stemming from an incident a year and a half prior when Adams and his girlfriend were both found unconscious in a Dallas apartment. The two were partying the night prior and had overdosed on a mixture of GHB and alcohol. Adams would recover. His girlfriend, Linda Kapengst, would not be so lucky. That's another death. (laughs) It's another death. In the months following the death of uh, Kapengst, Adams was hospitalised for depression and undergoing counselling. Friends said that he owed the IRS over $50,000. Is that Erin R. Scheister, the wrestler? (laughs) No, no, it's not. No, it's it's the Inland Revenue. Well, in 1997, Adams began competing for World Championship Wrestling as a mid-card performer. He was intended to be used with a Blue Bloods tag team. However, Adams and Regal shared legitimate animosity towards each other, and the team was quickly disbanded. I tried to look up Regal's Adams heat. Whatever heat they had, backstage stuff they kept to themselves, because there was no stories about that. It'd be interesting to ask Regal, actually. Well, Regal's not dead, so, you know, that's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's got one of these things going for him. Well, Adams then feuded with Glacier in a battle of super kicks and then locked horns with Chip Minton. <laughs> what a name. I know, it's brilliant. Adams was granted his release from WCW and satisfied with his role in the organisation. He returned to Texas as a promoter and part-time wrestler, appearing for a time in NWA Southeast, Southwest organisation. Well, here's how he lost it all. Where Chris Adams was on the top of the world. He owned multiple properties and cars a few months prior to his death. Adam told the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, I thought it would never end. I lost it all through divorces, ignorance and mistakes. Adams would ultimately lose his life in a drunken altercation on October 7th, 2001. And like I said, the guy uh, for self-defence, so Adams obviously started that fight in the pub. But it, it just shows a guy that could have been such a great wrestler. And we've seen him on night show when we're going back. And this is why we wanted to focus on him. But just that story alone, connected with the kind of Von Erichs and WCCW, is, is, is pretty unbelievable, you know, when you think about how much tragedy there actually is. New Jack! <laughs> and the mass transit incident was an infam- infamous event in professional wrestling that occurred at an ECW house show on November the 23rd, 1996, at the Wonderland Ballroom in Revere. It involved Eric Koulis, who was, uh, who's unfortunately dead. He was uh, born in 79, died May 12, 2002. He was an aspiring professional wrestler after using the ring name Mass Transit, being bladed too deeply by New Jack of the Gangsters, during a tag team match, 
Two of Kulis's arteries were severed and he bled profusely and passed out. He needed to be escorted out of the arena with medical attention. Further controversy came to light that Kulas had lied to ECW owner and Booker Paul Heyman about his age and professional wrestling training. The incident led to a future ECW pay-per-view being temporarily cancelled and a lawsuit from Kulas's family. Right, so let's get into it. So the incident was Axel Rotten had been scheduled to work a tag team match with Devon Dudley against the Gangsters, which is New Jack and Mustafa Saeed, but could not make the show due to a family emergency. Eric Kulas, a wrestling fan who was just turned 17, told ECW owner and booker, booker uh, Paul Heyman that he was 23 and convinced Heyman to allow him in to, fi- to fill in for Rotten by lying that he'd been trained by Killer Kowalski, a retired star who ran a notable wrestling school in the Boston area. Heyman stated afterwards that he was unaware of Kulas's real age. Kulas performed his mass transit, uh, Ralph Cramden-esque bus driver gimmick. Well, before the match, Kulas asked New Jack to blade him since he had never done it himself and New Jack agreed. During the match, Dudley and New Jack brawled outside the ring while Saeed and Transit fought inside the ring. The match was booked as a squash, and Dudley was quickly isolated outside the ring. The gangsters then double-teamed Kulas inside the ring, with New Jack pummeling him with crutches, toasters, and various other objects in the hardcore style ECW was known for. At the end of the match, New Jack bladed Kulas with a surgical scalpel. The two had agreed to cut the two had agreed, uh, <coughs> as the two had agreed, but cut too deeply and severed Kulas's forehead. Kulas passed out as blood poured from his head. Right, so I've got a video on a, a tablet now. Let's just see if it plays. It's not, it's not that bad, Dan. No, I haven't seen the video. Right, ma- Mass Transit is a dude obviously dressed like a fucking... Here, hold it. He's a dude dressed like a fucking bus driver. Obviously, you know what New Jack, <laughs> New Jack looks like. <laughs> so Dan's going to watch it for the first time and then tell me exactly what he thinks of it. Well, New Jack's just going around taunting the crowd. He's uh, basically slapping his ass and giving him the middle finger. Well, the event was a house show and thus not televised. However, camcorder footage was available, which was eventually lo- used as evidence in legal proceedings. The video showed New Jack quietly asking Kulis after the blading, you're all right. Next, the gangsters proceed to work Kulas over even more with elbows and various objects, prompting Kulas father to scream, ring the fucking bell, he's 17. As medics rushed to the ring to aid Kulas, New Jack grabbed the house microphone and shouted, I don't care if the motherfucker dies. He's white. I don't like white people. I don't like people from Boston. I'm the wrong person to fuck with. He didn't say person, but I'm obviously not going to say that word. You're not going to be that controversial today, <laughs> no, then, James. No, controversial. What's happening in the match? Um, Dudley's on the outside, he's being isolated, and they're fighting through the crowd. I know, it's unbelievable now you'd have footage of it. I think about that, about the own heart death the other day. You know, if it happened this day and age, how many, how many videos would there be of it? You know, we're lucky that 20 years ago there was no, nothing like that. He's getting beaten over the back with a crutch in the ring. He's 17. Yeah, is he bl- he's a big guy, isn't he? He's a large guy. Is he not bleeding yet? What's happening? What's happening? He's getting his head... Cut open by a scalpel. Yeah. He's covering his face at the moment. <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> Bloody's just pissing out now. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> he gets picked up. Oh, he's getting jabbed in the face now. Punching on his cut. And there's just a fucking pool of blood yeah. in the ring. You see him holding it as well. Yeah, he's like, yeah. oh my God. He's in shock. You don't want to watch it anymore. Yeah, stopped. 
Right, so we'll leave it there anyway, because obviously like, it's, it's pretty bad. Uh, Dan, do you want to continue? Well, the, this is the repercussions. The, interview, the incident led to the cancellation of ECW's first ever pay-per-view event, Barely Legal, by pay-per-view provider Request TV on Christmas Eve 96. Heyman, by his own admission, in the rise and fall of ECW, begged and pleaded with the rest, finally convinced the show that they had been misled. The pay-per-view event was placed back on the schedule on Sunday, April the 13th, 1997 at 9pm. Well, Kulas and family later did an interview with Inside Edition that featured footage from the incident, including New Jack cutting him and berating him after the match. The segment depicted Kulas as an innocent, unprepared victim while vilifying ECW, even going as far as showing that Heyman had not asked for a state identification. The story was completed before the Kulas launched their lawsuit, so key details of how Kulas actually got himself into the match had not been made public at that point. Well, three years after the incident, Jerome New Jack Young was tried on charges of assault and battery with a dangerous weapon and was later sued by the Kulas family after hearing about Eric Kulas's request to New Jack to blade him. A jury acquitted Young of all charges in the criminal trial. He was later declared as not liable in the civil trial. Performers who testified at Young's trial stated that Kulas, arrogant and demanding backstage prior to the match, and when told that he would have to bleed as part of the match, Kulas asked Young to blade him as he had never done it. It was also testified that Kulas's father shouted, he's only 17, and take it on easy on him, he's a kid, when they isolated his son from Devon Dudley during the match and double-teamed him. Well, the book Rise and Fall of ECW also states that the medic crew carried Kulas out. He was escorted by Tommy Dreamer, who held his hand to comfort him, passing by the audience. Kulas began giving him the finger in an attempt to continue playing the bad guy. Well, authorities later determined that Kulas had lied to Heyman about his age and experience. Kulas claimed to be 23 years of age, but he was actually 17 years old. He also claims to have been trained by Killer Kowalski and his father vowed for him, but Kulas was never trained to wrestle. <clears throat> in the rise and fall of ECW, Paul Heyman states that Kulas's dubious credentials as a student of Killer Kowalski were endorsed by a then-known midget wrestler who was with Kulas when he and his father approached the staff about getting Eric in the match. Well, Eric Kulas unfortunately died on May 12, 2002 at the age of 22 due to complications from a gastric bypass surgery. You think how fucking bad that is? Well, 30 years since the death of professional wrestling legend Bruiser Brody at this time has passed oh is this the next story yeah the next story oh, right. yeah right so that's it. I mean but you see so what are your thoughts on the was that too far in the video <laughs> <laughs> well you know it's it is six and a half a dozen you know getting bladed by new jack he he must have cut him quite deep to sever two arteries in his head mm. we've got another new jack bit of story uh, new jack obviously was willing to take dangerous bumps. His stiff hardcore wrestling style and shooting on opponents who were deemed disrespectful. New Jack is extremely dangerous and hostile in the ring, ring willing to break script to cause serious harm to his opponents. So even after ECW, during a scaffold match, New Jack pulled out a taser and tased Vic Grimes with it multiple times and then threw him off the scaffolding, crashing into one table and landing on a turnbuckle and ropes. Have you ever seen this spot between New Jack and Vic Grimes? Yes, because I don't want to fucking see it. <laughs> you can see it again now. Vic Grimes versus New Jack. <laughs> fucking hell. 
What happened? What happened? He was thrown from at least 50 foot in the air. And I'm not even fucking exaggerating this time from like the scaffolding around the ring. Did he miss the two straight onto the outside or? I think he hit one table and then hit the turnbuckle. Slow-mo. Well, he's kind of slid off the <laughs> tables. Yeah, hit the top rope, bounced into the ring and landed really awkwardly. Oh, New Jack's got him. Not happy, Vic Rhymes. Bounced off. <laughs> well, New Jack openly admitted that he did that on purpose with the intent of legitimately kill Vic Rhymes over an incident previously leading to New Jack's legit brain damage and blindness in his right eye. Now, anybody that not know, New Jack used to be Hitman as well. How fucked up you let someone like that wrestle down, eh? I mean, there's some controversial characters. I mean, there's a lot about New Jack taking it too far, but there's just two incidents from him right there. The motherfucker's still alive. Yeah, and he's still going. How old is he now? 55. Never Fucking su- forehead. Never signed by WWE. I wonder why. Oh, shit, yeah. Gypsy Joe's a good one. New Jack is fighting this kind of, like, 60-year-old guy in, like, a kind of, uh, like, tiny little arena. There's only, like, 20 people there. And... For some reason, he just beats the living fucking shit out of him. I honestly don't know why he does it for. But it's quite bad. The guy's really old. Yeah, just him beating the shit out of him. I mean, it's bad from New Jack. <coughs> he has why he's controversial character, and that's why he's never signed for the WWE as well. But we move on, and one of the moments we've touched on, I think, in every controversial character's episode is Bruiser Brody and what happened. Well, 30 years since the death of uh, Bruiser Brody, the time has passed and it's become increasingly evident that Brody was actually murdered by Jose Gonzalez in a Puerto Rican locker room. And WWE Hall of Famer Tony Atlas was not only there for the incident, but was the first to respond to the fallen Brody. In an interview with Hannibal TV, Atlas shared his memory of the moments before and after and during the attack of Brody. Atlas and Brody... So... This is pretty graphic, Dan, but I'll let you take it. Watless and Brody have a locker room conversation interrupted by Gonzalez, who asks to speak with Brody. Atlas remembers a towel being wrapped around Gonzalez's hand. Well, Brody turned around. He still had his bag in his hand, Atlas said. He turned around and stepped one foot in the shower and then the other foot in the shower. As soon as the second foot in the shower, sound. Oh, oh, just like that. The second time he did it, he bent over and I looked up. The first time he did it, I thought he got punched. I thought, damn, Jose hit hard. They're fighting. So when he bent over, Jose lifted the knife in the air and I saw the knife and the blood dripping off it. So I jump up and grab Brody and put him away. The knife came down and cut Brody's ponytail off. That's how sharp the knife was, he said. Atlas, remember how unassuming Brody was the moment before he was stabbed? Brody just asked Atlas to draw a picture of his son. In the same instant, Brody took out a picture of his son. Gonzalez entered the picture. He had no idea. He didn't even put his bag down. He had his wrestling bag and he just carried a little pouch with his money and everything in it. He was looking at me drawing. It was the last thing on his mind. Then he reached into his pouch to get a picture of his son. He reached to give that picture to me and I reached to get the picture before I could do that. Jose walks. Before I could do that, Jose said, can I talk to you? Brody turned, so I never got the picture. 
He walked into the shower with his pouch in one hand and a picture of his son in the other. Well, because of congestion in the arena, it took 45 minutes for an ambulance to arrive. Despite the clear locker room murder, Alex remembers most of the wrestlers acting like nothing happened. When the ambulance finally arrived, the emergency team didn't have the strength to lift Brody, so Atlas had to help. Brody was stabbed through the liver and intestine. Doctors quickly fixed his intestine and told Atlas to leave while they worked on Brody's liver. Atlas returned to the arena where no one seemed to care about the stabbing. When I came back to the dressing room, the blood hadn't dried on the floor yet. I hear laughing and joking and everybody's bragging about their match. Well, at the time, Hill and Faces were kept in separate locker rooms and Atlas couldn't tell anyone what happened until his match with the Iron Sheik. Upon hearing the news, Iron Sheik cut the match short. He said, Hot your bunnies! While Atlas was questioned by the police and was able to easily point at Gaza... <coughs> Atlas was questioned by the police and was able to easily point out Gonzalez as the perpetrator. However, the day Savio Vega told Atlas he needed to leave Puerto Rico because there were plans in place to have him murdered. Well, the murder of Bruce Vody did go to trial, but Gonzalez was found not guilty after the court decided he acted in self-defence. Atlas wasn't subpoenaed until after the guilty verdict. The last image I got of Brody was him laying down, holding his intestines... In with one hand, Atlas said, the other hand, he was holding on to a picture of his son. That's how the man left this world, holding his intestines and his son. That's how he left this world. Oh, my God. Well, yeah, Bruiser Brody. And I think we'll leave it there if we do the next controversial characters. Uh, Booker T was interviewed by Hannibal TV recently. Soon after Booker T was honoured with the Lou Fez Award by the Dan Gable Forest in the Museum, during the interview, Booker was asked about his infamous backstage fight with Batista in 2006. Booker said he never had a problem with Batista and added that there was often a lot of testosterone in the locker room, which led to disagreements. Booker T added that sometimes wrestlers had to work with each other and get along, which could lead to a fight which is what happened between him and Batista. Booker also added they have since settled their disagreement. So Randy Orton then, May 30th, 2012. WWE announced that Randy Orton would be suspended for 60 days, effective for his second violation for the company's talent wellness policy. Orton has been suspended twice by the company in 2006, in April and August. Orton's suspension in April 2006 was set for 60 days for unprofessional conduct. Orton apparently openly rolled a marijuana joint backstage at a SmackDown taping in March, uh, a week prior to WrestleMania. Bruce Pritchard found out about the incident and reported it to management. Orton was apparently already in hot water at a point over past infractions prior to the wellness policy being put in place, and the action was said to have been the last straw that broke the camel's back. While suspended, Orton spent four weeks at an anger management clinic in Atlanta, Georgia. This apparently did not count in the wellness policy violation because the company didn't test for marijuana at the time. The suspension was viewed more as a conduct violation. Orton was suspended again in mid-August 2006 <coughs> for a wellness policy Autumn was suspended again in mid-August 2006 for a wellness policy violation, which would be considered his first violation. During that period, Autumn was involved in a feud with Hulk Hogan, which was built at SummerSlam, and he was able to stay on the road and appear on television during that period. Autumn was removed from house shows for over a 30-day period from mid-August to mid-September, during which time Autumn moved into a new home with his fiancée. 
In August of 2007, W spent 11 performers based on information the company received from the investigation now New York District Attorney's Office about contacted talent who were using Signature Pharmacy or another internet prescription service to obtain performance-enhancing drugs over the internet prior to the implementation of the wellness policy. The New York Daily listed Randy Orton as one of the names of a customer of a Signature <laughs> Policy. I can hear a lot of jealousy <laughs> towards Orton. <laughs> Well, he stopped doing things wrong. Well, Sports, Illustri- Illust- uh, Sports Illustrated reported that Orton received Sumatropin, Nandrolone and Statanzolol till the firm was busted in February 2007. Stanzolol and are anabolic steroids, while Stomatropin is a growth hormone drug. Orton, despite being on the pharmacy list, was not suspended. It was explained at the time that he had already been punished for the matter in the past, so it technically did not count as a wellness policy violation for him. Yeah, so while Orton's in hot water several times in the past, the latest suspension is any second violation of the wellness policy. That was then. This is now. (laughs) Orton says... uh, WWE says it is looking into old allegations of sexual improperty of sexual allegations in propriety. Like, WWE says it is looking into old allegations of sexual improprietary against Randy Orton that resurfaced last week. A former WWE writer, Court Bauer, accused Orton of exposing himself to new writers as a form of initiation in a 2012 podcast. The story gained traction after a Reddit user reposted the quote. For every new writer that will show up, he comes in his room, puts his hand down his pants, pulls out his dick, and touches himself. Then says, I'm Randy Orton. Shake my hand. Oh, you don't want to shake my hand? You big league in me? That's fucked up, man. Should I tell Vincent Steph you won't shake Randy Orton's hand? Bauer said, Purple Davis. Bauer confirmed the story was true on Friday on Twitter. Well, Orton, who's 38, has been a mainstay with the <coughs> Orton, who is 38, has been a mainstay with the WWE for the better part of two decades. He has a history of issues outside the ring, most notably multiple violations of WWE's wellness policy, which we mentioned earlier. And by all accounts, Orton has matured in recent years and has had seemingly no documented issues lately. Well, it's unclear if any W executives knew of hazing ritual, Bauer said Orton did not harass him in his first day with the company because Stephanie McMahon was present. But the question is, will, and Randy, will the internet get Randy Orton fired from the WWE? Um, it's hard to tell whether or not there'll be consequences for Orton. Not only is he a company favourite and one of the WWE most decorated stars, but he has survived a number of controversies through his 18 years in the company. These allegations, if true, are reprehensible, though the company would need to undergo full investigation before taking action. Well, that being said, the story was all over the internet this weekend. It gathers steam a la the fabulous Moolah Battle Royal controversy. WWE won't be able to ignore it. And this could spell bad news. Recent allegations have come to light that they were actually quite old, saying to show his man parts to new writers as a way to break them in. Mr. Kennedy spent some time in WWE and was even fired after he took a suplex from Kennedy in the wrong way. Well, Ken Kennedy spent some time doing a U-shoot interview when he discussed one disturbing experience he had with a Viper. That borders on the highly appropriate. One time I was in a locker room. Everyone had left the building. It was just Randy and I in the locker room. 
He was naked. He'd just come out of the shower or something, and he was naked. I remember my boots were sitting there, and he dipping his cock into my boot. I was like, what are you doing? He was like, ding, just dipping his balls and his cock into my boot. <laughs> See, now that's funny. That is funny as fuck. He used to do stuff like this, and we'd be riding in the car, and I'd be like, Randy, there's no one else around to find that funny. Only time will tell if WWE's investigation into the matter actually unearths any proof of Orton's inappropriateness backstage. But it certainly seems like we have enough proof by eyewitnesses, eyewitness accounts at this point to start a solid case that may be at the least Randy Orton has an extremely juvenile sense of humour. Of course he does. So the Randy Orton story's been picked up for Fox News and that might be banned for Orton. But that was then, that was now and forever, Dan. Well, Randy Orton allegedly joked with WWE staffers during SmackDown Live's dark main event about some of the sexual harassment claims made against him, according to reports. The website claims that following Tuesday's WWE tapings in Greenville, South Carolina, there was a match that saw Luke Gallows, Carl Anderson and WWE champion AJ Styles take on Orton, Samoa Joe and the United States champion Shinzuki fucking Nakamura. Well, apparently prior to the match, Orton approached W crew members who were ringside and offered a handshake, shaking a hand of one star for whilst laughing. The whole group then reportedly burst out laughing afterwards. So the whole group, meaning Gallo, WWE champion AJ Styles, Samoa Joe, who's challenging the WWE champion, uh, US champion Shinsuke Nakamura, all thought it was funny. Look... They might not be laughing, but the people at ringside were. But even his tattooist is difficult. And this is another news story. It ran out in all controversial stuff like this with his problems. And even his tattooist is because the story is, of course, several months ago, Catherine Alexander sued the two companies, WWE and 2K Sports, after alleging the tattoos she did on Orton were original designs. She did not give them permission to be recreated in a video game. She was seeing WWE, Take-Two Interactive Studio Software, 2K Games Inc., 2K Sports, Visual Concept Entertainment, Ukes Co. and Ukes LA. Well, WWE and 2K previously argued that the United District Court of Southern Districts of Illinois where the lawsuit was filed, doesn't have jurisdiction over them and attempted to have the lawsuit diminished. Well, in, res- in response, Alexander claims the court does not have personal jurisdiction over each entry because they choose specifically to aim the alleged infringement of a copyrighted work directly in the state of Illinois and because when previously contracted, W offered a payment of $450 for the rights. Her response also included copies of six copyright applications in relation to the assorted designs dated back to March of 2018. The court has ordered that all discoveries in relation to the case wrap up by January 7th. A settlement conference on April 16th has been scheduled. But, I mean, but that's Randy Orton. And everywhere he goes, there's trouble. Because if that was just it for Randy Orton, that, you know, that would be enough for him. But we've got some more controversial stories. Next one, uh, shitting in a diva's handbag and more, you know. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that, that we've got here for Randy Orton. Don't laugh at it. It's not funny, Dan. Right. Well, that's your take on it. My take is that it's just funny as fuck. Instant, instant with the fans, Dan. Instant with the fans. In 2014, being a professional wrestler means that whenever you go around the world, you're going to be recognised by fans and often asked for pictures and autographs. While many wrestlers are happy to take these opportunities, sometimes they need a break from the constant public. In 2007, Orton was nearly arrested after an incident in Orleans involving a fan and his camera. Sean P- 
Poff, a friend of the fan in question, posted online his account of what happened. As we're going up to a friend, asked Randy Orton if we could have a quick picture. Orton said everyone wants a quick picture. Then Orton took the camera upstairs with him and proceeded to throw it off on the bus. Lucky enough, some of the other guys caught it and gave it back to my friend. Lo and behold, he realises his SIM card is gone from his camera. The incident escalated when the police were called and the fans said all he wanted was his SIM card back. Orton settled accounts by giving the fans $100 to cover the cost, which he autographed and signed to dipshits. This is not his first, not last time Randy Orton's had it with the fans. He often got in heated arguments with people at shows, including a threatening one fan at a show at 2012. Well, not long after CM Punk rocked the world with a standard microphone, Randy Orton tried to get in on the action by going on KUPD, a radio station in Phoenix, Arizona, and effectively shooting on other wrestlers in the WWE. Most notoriously, he stated he could name 10 guys that Kelly Kelly has stepped with in the WWE locker room. This was seen as hugely offensive to someone who at the time was the face of the WWE Divas decision. division. Many in the locker room were extremely upset at these comments and Orton tried to smooth things over with an apology. He said, yesterday I put my foot in my mouth and I need to try my best to make it right. I owe Kelly Kay an apology. The fact she's dated a few guys I work with doesn't make her a bad person and is also none of my or anyone else's business. Yesterday I got caught up in a live radio interview and brought Kelly's personal life into it. It was completely uncalled for. Kelly, I hope one day you can forgive me. I do, however, understand that if it doesn't happen, please expect everyone, please, everyone, trash me all you want, but please drop the topic out of respect. Yeah, well, yeah, he's a prick, isn't he? Well, next one, because he's got some pull backstage, he's had uh, a negative effect on people's careers. He got Mr. Kennedy fired right on Raw in the main event when Kennedy hit a back suplex in Orton. Orton that was there's a lot less safe than it could and should have been. Orton and Kennedy had a heat words backstage, and four days later, Mr. Kennedy was released from the WWE contract. Kennedy claims that while Orton was not the reason he was filed, the incident may have been the final straw. This wasn't the only example of ring work affected someone's push. At one point, Kofi Kingston sued Orton seemed to elevate him past his mid-card status, but it wasn't to be. Because, in a match, Orton lost it, shouting, Stupid! Stupid! Kofi's push was abruptly cancelled, and, like we say, he had to find a new day to sort himself out again. Well, for a while, it seemed like the controversy days were behind Randy Orton, and he had been a good boy for a decent length of time. Earlier this year, however, he found himself embroiled in another scandal when he tweeted something offensive about a female fan. It quickly went viral. On the 4th of August, he tweeted, Look at look at Kim Kilrow. I met the Latino Miss Piggy today at the gym. I wish you were there to have a good laugh with me. Hashtag Ms. Pig. Fans were immediately outraged. The story goes that apparently the fan in question had been sending harassing messages to Orton's girlfriend via Twitter to the point she was blocked by Orton on the social media platform. Regardless, it's incredibly unwise for a star like Orton to make such remarks and can especially, and especially to make them publicly. Behind closed doors, he can be as sexist as he likes, but on Twitter, he represents an internationally traded company. Once again, it seems like Randy Orton got away with this incident punishment-free, Although he did tweet shortly after, I apologise if any of my tweets offended anyone. The answer to bullying isn't more bullying. Yeah, and that's good that you, I'm hearing you say that. More Randy Orton. So we know about the anger management courses he went on, uh, but that didn't end afterwards, unfortunately, because in 2007, a year later, he was sent home from a European tour after causing $50,000 worth of damage to a hotel room. W issued a statement declaring they'd taken action against Orton, but didn't go into further detail. It believed he covered the cost of the damages and wasn't fined or suspended at all. He was a marine, damn it. 
Before Randy followed his family's footsteps and became a professional wrestler, he was briefly in the USMC, but was dishonorably discharged after going AWOL on two separate occasions and disobeying a superior officer. As a result, he was court-mandated and served 38 days in military prison. Over a decade later, and WWE tapped Randy Orton to be the next star of the Marine series of... To be the next star of the Marine series of films after John Cena and Ted DiBiase Jr., his inclusion in the franchise was immediately controversial and his former unit member, Corporal Mike Vinn, was outspoken about Orton's casting. I am disgusted that his face and the word Marine are being used next to each other, real or fake, because the fact that he quit us, the country and the Marine Corps, in the role of a Marine is a disgrace to those who have worn and are wearing that uniform. WWE quickly pulled Orton from the role, replacing him with The Miz in Marine Free Homefront. They also issued a statement saying WWE demonstrated poor judgment in signing Randy Orton for the third installment of the film. Despite Randy's popularity, the fact he was dishonorably discharged from the United States Marine Corps made it inappropriate for him to be cast in this film. It was smart of them to act so quickly, but remarkable that no one foresaw this being a problem in the first place. I mean, there is a lot of stuff for Randy Orton that he has done. Uh, up next, well, this one, the one where he pooped in a lady's bag. <laughs> Dan, it's not funny. It's not funny. This is probably the most notorious of all the Randy Orton stories. And quite honestly, it sounds too ridiculous to be true. And thankfully, in fact, it is untrue. He actually just doused her bag in lotion and oil. In an interview, Rochelle Lowen, the WD felt the wrath of the Viper, went into detail what will exactly happen to her and her bag. It was merely just self-tanning lotion and baby oil, but I wouldn't put past him to shit in my bag. That Orton had, that Orton, Vend- uh, Orton had a vendetta against her after she didn't know who he was on her first day with the company. She also speculated Orton was attracted to her and didn't know how to deal with it, so lashed out with verbal abuse and intimidation. Where it's a relief that Orton didn't go to the lengths of pooping in a lady's bag, it doesn't make up for the month's worth of torment Lowen received during her time with WWE. So, you find that... Fun. I mean, what what is... We look at that, if it was any other wrestler, if Enzo Amore had that kind of amount of stuff, you would be having a go at him so much. But because it's Randy Orton, you think it's acceptable, do you? I think it's funny. Well, it, well it's, you can't just because it's Randy Orton. Any other wrestler, there would be a problem with it, wouldn't there? Well, you'd have a problem with it. So you wouldn't have a problem if it was uh, Finn Balor and he'd just kept being a dick backstage and he was going to poop someone's back and his dick out all the time. you find that hilarious, would you? Someone's doing that to you at work. I think it's funny, yes. Well, I, I think you're you're wrong about that, but hey. That's Randy Orton. I mean, you're not going to stick up for him, but he's just, he seems like he's just a dick, you know? I think that is it for Randy Orton. He, he got in a position at an early age and he thought he was better than everybody else. And I think therein lies the... Um, the problem, you know, the, the fact that Randy Orton thinks he can get away with it. And with W's track record, he has got away with it. And even the latest comments about, you know, he'll get away with it again. And he'll be saying else that he does. Because if Randy Orton looks acceptable, unless it's someone that people don't like, then he can get fired from it straight away. So, you know, it's it's all of those things, I suppose. But we'll move on for Randy Orton, because obviously Dan doesn't think there's a problem with him. Uh, to Tough Enough. Now, Tough Enough... Now, I binge-watched Tough Enough on the network for a few months ago and couldn't believe how many controversial moments took place on it. There are four seasons of the show, but season four is a one-hour special, but I think we'll still talk about that. Still, uh, first, a bit of backstory. 
Well, during the height of the Attitude Era, WWF was a ratings machine. MTV had acquired heat, but wanted something to bridge the gap between that and the real world. So MTV executives Kevin Dunn and, of course, Vince McMahon came up with a new reality show. Have 12 people with absolutely no wrestling experience thrown into a house and trained up to become professional wrestlers. What could It's incredible to think the idea would work, but long before the reality era, we see... A true look behind the WWE curtain. Yeah, and it's amazing. We talked about earlier with um, Chris Adams, how he branched off. The, the amount of the tough enough kind of branching off into a tree. So, I mean, what we'll do, we'll go through the seasons and we'll go through the cast. So, season one, the cast, it's Bobby Joe Anderson. Christopher Nifong. Christopher Nowinski, who was a runner-up. Daryl Cross. Uh, Greg Boyer slash Greg Matthews. Jason Daybury. Josh Lumberger, he was runner-up, eventual signed to WWE's broadcaster under the name Josh Matthews, and he married Madison Rain on June 25th, 2014. Matthews was released from the WWE. Maven Huffman, who was a winner, Maven was subsequently released by WWE on July the 5th, 2005. Oh, shit, yeah. So, Matthews was released from WWE June 25th, 2014. He's also married to Madison Rain, so you can sort that out, James. Nidia Guran, she was a winner. Nidia was released from her WWE contract on November 3rd, 2004, along with several other performers in a routine purge of talent. Big up the 311 girl. <laughs> <laughs> Paulina Thomas. Shadrick McGee. Taylor Matheny, who was the runner-up, is married to Brian Kendrick. Yeah, and Victoria Tabor. Co- uh, coaches were... Al Snow. Jackie. And Taz, who was the hard one. Yeah. So we're going to look at each one individually, but I just want to look a bit uh, tough enough now. So this is 2001 it was starting. And it is basically wrestling's got talent, you know, that we see the audition videos for it. And it's people maybe no experience whatsoever to people who maybe look the part a little bit. And they're going to have like an audition process and then cut it down to, like say, the main cast here. Well, first up is Christopher Nowinski. On June 10th, 2002 episode of Raw, Nowinski debuted in WWE as a heel, helping William Regal beat Bradshaw in a European Championship match. Nowinski had a short-lived alliance with Regal, defeating Spike Dudley in his debut match the following week with Regal in his corner. Nowinski teamed with Regal on June 24th episode of Raw, defeating Bradshaw and Dudley. Nowinski continued to feud with Bradshaw over the next few weeks. Their feud ending on July the 8th episode of Rusky teamed with Jackie Gader in a losing effort against Bradshaw and Trish Stratus while also trying to warm up while, while also trying to warm up Regal from his breakdown after he lost the European Championship to Jeff Hardy. Nowinski feuded with the Dudley Boys. All right, Bad Blood, Nowinski and Mac defeat the Dudley Boys. Nowinski wrestled his final match with WWE due to him suffering with post-concussion syndrome on the June 23rd episode of Raw in a losing effort against Maven. After a full year of post-concussion symptoms, he chose to retire from wrestling. Well, since Nowinski's departure from WWE and the publication of his book Head Games, he has garnered, signific- he has garnered a significant amount of media attention, making numerous appearances on networks such as ESPN and CNN to discuss sports-related head injuries. Nowinski continues to work as a consultant for Trinity Partners while serving as co-founder and president of the Concussion Legacy Foundation, CLF, for the Sports Legacy Institute. The CLF was founded on June 14, 2007 in Boston, Massachusetts by Nowinski 
and Dr. Robert Cantu in reaction to new medical research indicating brain trauma in sports had become a public health crisis. Dr. Cantu wrote the foreword in a 2012 update of Head Games to accompany the release of the documentary of the same name. Post-mortem analysis of the brain tissue of former contact sports athletes was revealing repetitive brain injuries, both concussions and some concussive blows, could lead to the neurodegenerative disease chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE. In addition, an absence of awareness and education on concussions, specifically proper diagnosed and management, was allowing Oh, specifically proper diagnosis and management was allowing the disease to profilerate, finally with the brain trauma becoming a signatory injury of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. This research slash education model could also be applied to the military. Yeah, and the reason why Nowinski is important, because usually we talk about controversial characters in that way, uh, he's doing really good. Uh, he's kind of changed the sport because in case in point would be Daniel Bryan. If you look at the injury he sustained with a concussion, he maybe would have come back and maybe would have ended his career. But because of the research that Lewinsky and others were doing, Daniel Bryan then knew that he could eventually come back if the right training technique was in place. The NFL had been sued a lot. That's why it makes it controversial because if the damage done to the WWE wrestlers with WWE not helping them out, therein they could sue the WWE for kind of not helping them out and causing these injuries. And look at the amount of wrestlers' deaths and stuff that is due to head injuries and other things, you know. So it's really important that Winsky uh, has done that, you know. Anyway, up next is Maven. And whatever happened to the original Tough Enough winner, Maven Huffman. The guy was groomed for superstardom at one point. WWE wouldn't allow just anyone to eliminate the Undertaker full of Royal Rumble, you know. That then in 2003-2004 looked like he was going to become a member of Evolution and from association with Triple H. And then nothing. Maven's career just kind of petered out. He was jobbed out. After his July 2005 release, Maven hit the indie scene and did some shows for the TNA-affiliated UWF. But after that, he just cut the rest of the business. What was he actually up to? Developing a serious addiction to oxycodone and hydrocodone. By all accounts, Maven was arrested in Florida in 2012 after he had been caught doctor shopping, going to various doctor's offices to get more pills than he was prescribed. He was released on a $2,000 bond and faced up to five years in jail. Realising he needed help, Maven underwent WWE-sponsored rehab and cleaned himself up. He now works in medical sales and has recently begun appearances on the convention circuit. Still, WWE won't want people knowing their inaugural winner became an addict and ended up in rehab. Yeah, so we've got tough enough now on the background. The guy uh, was just been in, he just got tore apart by Taz because he didn't have the uh, the proper physique, and they're going through uh, different training sessions here. Uh, so we'll continue having it. But here's something you don't see in every day: a picture of WWE executive producer Kevin Dunn. Dunn is Vince's long-term right-hand man and an extremely powerful person in WWE. He's been a fixture of WWE for more than 20 years and can allegedly help make or break careers. Dunn, who joined WWE Board of Directors in 2008, clearly doesn't like his picture being out there. He doesn't even have a picture of himself on WWE's executive officer's page on their cob, but his face was all over Tough Enough. And even on episodes that are now freely available on WWE Network, you can see Kevin Dunn on camera in the first couple of seasons. He was involved in the initial casting of the show, 
and helped to whittle down the thousand applicants to the final list of contestants. Dunn said things like, I don't like him at all, and made sure John Morrison didn't get through in season two because he felt like he was being patronised by him. Later on in season two, the contestants received a chance to have a one-on-one conversation with Dunn and his buck teeth. <laughs> so you can see that there's a kind of line-up, not only the judges that we know, but there's Kevin Dunn on the far right there. Not the big fat ginger guy. I think he, he just, he's part of the, the backstage. Well, he's not the far right, is he, James? <laughs> I do distinguish what far right is. <laughs> no, no, just in case. And we see they're getting skipping and training and for that. Michael Cole's there. To have a look. Up next, we've got Greg Matthews. He travelled the independent scene and still working today. He gave an interview. Yeah, he, he gave an interview to Blog Talk Radio. He's just talking about what he did for um, Tough Enough. But more importantly, teamed with Rockin' Rebel. Yeah, and Rockin' Rebel. They hit the independent circuit after leaving ECW in 95. He then had a brief stint in WCW and numerous... And then... With the then-called WWF. Oh, sorry. A brief stint in WCW and numerous dark matches with the then-called WWF. He had successful tours of Japan, Korea and Puerto Rico before returning to the US in 96. <clears throat> Throughout the mid-90s, Rebel and fellow ECW alum Glenn Osborne formed a successful tag team known as Darkside. Together they won the Maryland-based Mid-Eastern Wrestling Federation tag team titles five times, five times, five times, five times, five times. The Virginia-based International Pro Association tag team titles twice and appeared regularly for the NWA. On July 25th, 2000, Rockin' Rebel debuted in Combat Zone Wrestling. He joined Lobo's army and remained in the stable until it dissolved upon Lobo's retirement. He then formed a stable known as Rebel's Army with Dredrick Fraser, Doomsday, Danny Rose. He's in a Spurs player, left back. And former Tough Enough contestant Greg Matthews. Rebel and Matthews continued to team together in many promotions around the independent circuit, such as PWF, 3PW, PWU, and World One. Between 2003 and 2005, Rock and Rebel made numerous appearances with pro pain, pro wrestling. He later wrestled for numerous independent federations. He was inducted into the DWF and IWPF Hall of Fame in 2012, and the ACWA, MWF, and 1CW Halls in 2014. But then we got news that a professional wrestler shot his wife and turned the gun on himself in an apparent murder-suicide, police have said. Officers in Pennsylvania have reported it, that injuries to Charles Williams, better known as Rockin' Rebel, and his wife Stephanie indicated that he'd used a firearm on them both. No other words, wounds were sustained by the couple who were found in the living room on Friday. To friends, two 10-year-old children of Miss Williams, who was 50, also lived at a house in the northeastern U.S. state, but it was not clear whether Mr. Williams was their father. The 52-year-old was a well-known figure on the independent wrestling circuit and, like we said, enjoyed success, as Dan said earlier. Uh, and a GoFundMe page has been set up in her memory. So, Rockin' Rebel there turned the gun on his wife and then on himself. And, of course, he teamed up with Greg Matthews in Tough Enough. The Triple H speech from Tough Enough Season 1 this did nobody any favours. You could see the intention, take a top star and lecture the rookies on the passion it takes to make it in the business. The fact that Triple H was a heel at the time made it even better, in theory. In practice, Triple H just comes across like a bit of a jerk. 
He shows them how to bump and punch with intensity, which is fine. But the way he's lecturing the kids, you would think he was a 20-year veteran like Terry Funk. When Triple H delivered the speech, he had only really been a top guy for a year or so. If Triple H was to give the speech now, after a further 15 years of ring wars, it would have had a bit more weight to it. But back then, it just looked like another transparent attempt by WWE to make the game look like the biggest badass on the planet. It failed. The speech made for good TV, for sure, and Triple H made some good points. But it said more about Triple H's opinion of himself than it did about the show. Yeah, and let's uh, have a look at the clip right now. How you guys doing? Who's sore? Yeah? Been hard so far? Big man in the back, you... Taking the bumps tough? You been hurt? Big f***ing deal. Everybody get in the ring. Take a bump. Take a bump. Flat back. Just for further notice, one of you nuts is hanging out of your shorts. You got a big hole. It's the difference between that bump and that bump. What's the difference? Intensity. What do we do in the ring? From the time we walk through the curtain to the time we walk back through the curtain, we tell a story. But we don't tell it with words, we tell it with our bodies. Big man. Get you. Obviously, you've probably seen it before, seen it a million times. Should you throw a punch? I want you to try to hit him with a punch. Try not to knock his teeth out. It's good. Good snap. Hit me one time. See the difference in how fast I snap? Watch you begin. React to this. Am I hitting you? So like that in the ring, I'd tag you for real. What makes you want to be a wrestler? Uh, something different for me. It's a challenge. I like a challenge. You a fan? Not a big fan. No? no? You just saw it on TV one day and thought I'd like to get my ass kicked for a living. How about you? Just a lot of them. The whole, the whole business, the athleticism, the, the pain, the fame, the glory, want to get laid. Figure there's a lot of chicks, right? Follow wrestling around. The way I see it is, 200 plus days a year, we are on the road. You got kids, they grow up, you're not there. Your wife, she's sitting home. What's she doing? Don't know. Your husband, he's home. What's he doing? Don't know. 
You get home, you've been gone, you're tired, you're beat up. You're not done, it just starts. Now you gotta be super husband, you gotta be super wife, you gotta be super dad, you gotta be super mom. It's not an easy life. Careers are short, careers are fast. I'm not that tough, I'm, not, I'm no tougher than anybody else in our business. But I respect our business. I love our business. I put my life on the line every day for our business and I gladly do it and I will continue to do it until I can do it no longer. You guys are all on the easy track and you have to earn respect in this business. It's not given to you, you earn it. You pay your dues and right now you guys are a mile ahead of where you should be paying dues. You guys have the greatest opportunity in the world, in my opinion, to be in the greatest business in the world. Do not f it up. Do not throw it away. Because if you do, you piss on every single person that has come before you. Every single person that has paid their dues, every single person that has busted their ass, every single old timer that's fairly crippled, that can't stand up, that can't walk, you piss on them. Every single person like Darren Drozdov, who's a friend of mine, that sits in a wheelchair and can't feel a damn thing from here down, you piss on them. You either want this or you don't. And if you don't want it, don't waste our fucking time. What do you think about Triple H cutting off Goldberg like that? He shouldn't really, but again, you know, they was, at that time, 2001, they was probably really rival, you know, he was, they was really rival companies, so, you know, I think it's kind of acceptable in that way. Well, I mean, it's a bit, you know, two-faced Triple H to induct him into the Hall of Fame after he said that about Goldberg, you know, but... They they change their minds about each other anyway, so I don't think that really matters. Um, so I mean that is just the kind of like taste of stuff in season one and that we had. Uh, which, I mean for that to have like four or five moments is pretty impressive, isn't it? You know, you think, oh my god, okay. We'll move on to season two. two. Uh, season two's not too too bad. Uh, the show, I think you should go back and watch it on the network because it's good. You can see him learning to take a bump. You see him taking other moves as well. Uh, and season one and two are really, really good for that. You do, If you love the behind-the-curtain look at it, you'll see it, and it's during the Attitude Era as well. And the guest Triple H, Kurt Angle, and other people show up uh, to help out. But season two cast, you've got Aaron Lewis. Alicia Martin. Annie King. Danny Carney. Greg. Hawk. Youngkins. Jackie Gader, she was the winner, competed as Miss Jackie and was manager of LA for tag team of Charlie Haas, who's now her husband, and Rico. Jake Solikoff, who was a runner-up. Uh, Jessie Ward, she married professional wrestler Tommaso Cha in September 2013. Kenny Lane, runner-up. Later in his com- in his career, he competed at TNA and Ring of Honor as Kenny King. Linda Miles, winner, competed as Shanique Kurt, the dominatrix valet of the Basham Brothers. Matt Morgan, who is known as the Blueprint Matt Morgan, he competes in TNA. Pete Tornator. Pete Tornator. Pete Tornator. Robert Savalet. <laughs> Savalet. 
Jessica Puss and your trainers were... Al Snow. Harker Holly. Ivory. Taz. And Chavo Guerrero Jr. There's only one real controversial moment in season two, and that's Jackie in a hot tub. Because she had a boyfriend at the time, but took a liking to one of the other guys, because they all lived in a house together as well. And she's all over him in the hot tub. And then the next day, she's like, I don't want anything to do with you. I'm with my boyfriend. Uh, and it's just it's awful for Jackie. But hey... She's with Charlie Haas now, so she got what she wanted, I guess, in this, in that kind of series. Uh, and then season three, well, we've got some of the best guests ever. Chris Benoit is one of your coaches. Season three does get a lot darker, and it's not just because of that. Um, we'll go through the cast. And we've got Chad. Eric Markovici, who was the runner-up. Jamie Buck. Runner-up. Runner-up. Jill, episode two, Jill quit after the very first day of training. The trainers were all annoyed and labelled her as a quitter because she never put forth her best effort. Uh, you've got John Hennigan, winner, eventually wrestled, of course, is Johnny Nitro and John Morrison. He's now Johnny Impact. Yeah. Uh, Jonah Edelman, who was the runner-up. Justin. Kelly. Lisa. Matt Capitelli, who was the winner. Nick. Rebecca. And Scott. And your trainers were... Al Snow. Ivory. And Builder Mott. Well, remember Lisa from season three, Dan? No? Well, that's a good reason for that. Lisa, a nondescript blonde who would never hope would win the competition, only appeared in the first two episodes. During the third episode, contestants and the audience were told that Lisa had decided that wrestling wasn't for her. Phrases such as, her mind gave in before her body was used to describe what happened. Boy, you can say that again. It wasn't a simple case of Lisa feeling a little bit of stress. She had a full-on psychological breakdown. With the rest of the house and trainers were out eating, Lisa reportedly stayed behind and started throwing herself into the walls. After that little episode, she found the MTV control room, made her way onto the roof of the house, and had to be talked down by producers. When her parents came to collect her, she physically attacked them, claiming she had no idea who they were. After that episode, she escaped custody in an LAX airport, causing a whole wing to be shut down, while attempts were made to find her. But the funding... Sometime later, Lisa, Lisa made her way to Ohio Valley Wrestling and claimed that Al Snow and WWE had sent her there for further training. It was untrue. Not taking a hint, Lisa found a way to get backstage at W events in September 2002 where she helped set up the pyro for the events and even had a face-to-face conversation with Vincent Mann. Once W officials finally caught on to what was going down and a picture of Lisa circulated among WWE security. <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> um, one of the other things as well about it is of course uh, we, we branch off to certain things and and a bit like Greg Matthews with Rock and Rebels, a tag team partner. Of course, John John Morrison had uh, Joey Mercury as a tag team partner, and and Joey Mercury talk about controversial for him. You know, he had so many moments, basically. Well, he was a gifted athlete, an athletic specimen with a mind that understood the psychology of wrestling. For him, a highly scouted prospect from the indie scene before indie scenes were cool who made it to the WWE and struck gold. But a long-standing battle with substance abuse continuously kept him down from achieving the greatness a clearer soul would have attained and his path to stardom was cut short twice. A third chance following his clean-up resulted in more of a backstage role where, which he embraced and contributed more than people realise. A quiet release at the beginning of the year and now the indie world is starting to see 
what a more mature and focused Joey Mercury is capable of doing. He's taking it one match at a time, but make no mistakes, Joey Mercury is making up for lost time. While 2017 was him getting his feet wet again after being away from a ring full-time for seven years, but 2018 will be a year of reckoning for Joey Mercury as he moves forward more determined than ever. Uh, yeah, I mean, with too much detail about Joey Mercury's uh, career, but I mean, it, with, with the, the most important moments is that throughout ECW where he worked and stuff like this, he had he'd basically become, you know, addicted to the alcohol and stuff. And uh, the big moment for him came when... When is it? When well, it was in March of 2007. Mercury was released for violations due to the WWE wellness policy. The great crop ride came to a grinding no, halt. Before you do that, let me just oh. do a bit before. Yeah, the, well, the the moment was... Uh, well, let me go. In 2006, in WWE Armageddon, the fatal four-way tag team match featuring Eminem, the Hardy Boys, William Regal, Dave Taylor, Paul London, Brian Kendrick. Joe Mercury took a brutal ladder shot to the face that resulted in serious damage. I mean, it was one of the most brutal ladder shots. It was a fucking... <laughs> when it like set up like a seesaw, yeah. Hardy jumped on it and it just catapulted him <laughs> in the face. Instead of putting his hands up like most wrestlers do, he kind of blocked it with his cheek. It was like kind of second mass, <laughs> mass transit incident, wasn't it? You know? Yeah. Uh, but it, that created an addiction to painkillers coupled with a near 15-year binge of drug and alcohol dependency. It was a recipe for disaster. Yeah, but in March of 2007, Mercury was released for violations due to the WWE wellness policy. The great ride came to a grinding halt, and while not stated at the time, it was revealed that Mercury's release was due to his long-standing substance abuse issues. As Mercury told um, <coughs> sources after, I'd been a drug addict and alcoholic 15 years old right before I started in wrestling. So that's the better part of 15 years. He'd failed the WWE wellness policies before, gone through his suspensions. He even went to WWE-sponsored rehab during his first run, but left early, lying to himself and his employers. I didn't want to tell anyone that I had a problem. I didn't want anyone to think that rehab had failed. I didn't want it to look bad on me because at that time I was on almost every Raw and SmackDown, getting a lot of work, being in a lot of good spots. Then one day, before taping, I took some pills that somebody handed me. They weren't prescribed to me. I knew it was wrong, but I took them anyway, because that's the nature of the beast. In fact, he had been taken off the road before his release and even pulled aside by Vince McMahon himself, who, according to Mercury, told him, we're not concerned about your work because we know you can pull it together for 30 minutes every night. We're worried that you're going to die. Uh, so... He returned to the WWE two years later, clean and sober and injury free, uh, with the Straight Edge Society and CM Punk real life uh, lifestyle was a big help to Mercury during his rehabilitation. And as we saw in the CM Punk special, Monk ev- Punk even bought Mercury's house after his 2007 WWE release. Uh, he managed to start working backstage, and that because came part of J and J security, didn't he? And now he's been released there. And there's a picture of uh, yeah. him in the ring of Follins. You expect Seth Follins to be front and centre, didn't you? But he's right behind everybody in that. Yeah, that looks like James Ellsworth at the back as well. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, that was um, Joey Mercury there in his career. And he's back in the independent scene. He, he re-teamed up with uh, John Morrison. So we come back to Tough Enough now. And they've been on the independent circuit. And our next person is uh, Matt Capitelli. On the third season of Tough Enough, John Morrison won, but he wasn't the only winner that season. 
Unfortunately for Matt Cabatelli, while John Morrison went on to have great success in the business, Matt's promising career was cut short due to a brain tumour in 2007. Ten years after his career was cut short, the tumour sadly came back more aggressively and Matt sadly passed away earlier this year. Which is horrible, and we talked about that, but another incident is uh, the Bob Holly incident in Tough Enough. Bob Holly had a long career in WWE. He was involved in some really good matches and was a hard worker. Good company man, if you will. But it would be forever known to most people for an incident in which he appeared to rough up Tough Enough Season 3 contestant Matt Capitelli. Holly, who was as surly as they come, took um, umbarge to the Tough Enough trainees horsing around in the ring during his downtime. He singled out Capitelli as the biggest offender and proceeded to give him an ass-whipping during a six-man tag Stiff, stiff at the best of times. Holly offense looked even stiffer because Holly's Holly would not stay still while he was being Matt would not stay down while he was being beat down, causing Holly to catch him in the eye and mouth. Capitelli came out the match with a black eye and a bloody lip. So let's have a look at that quickly. There we go. Holly's in now, and here's Matt. (laughs) Oh, there you go. Shot. (laughs) <laughs> Stay him there. Oh, chops to the face, kicks. So you say Randy Orton's a cunt? No, I know probably's bad, but fucking hell, you <laughs> booted him on the mouth. Sleep hold. You know he's got that inside as anything. Um, wh- why didn't Al Snow or something like that come in and stop it when they knew he's getting fucking beaten down? What a fucking state of him. Fucking hell. But he was messing around during his downtime. Look at that. That is disgusting. Do you think Charvo fucking pissed off by that? Charvo should have had a word. Uh, Al Snow checking it. No, he just got brain cancer and died, Al. So I'm sure everything worked out well for him, didn't it? You know? He goes up to him. Polly can't even fucking look at him. No, exactly, yeah. You fucking arsehole. <clears throat> oh, fucking hell. <laughs> What the fuck is up with your shitty laptop? It is fucked. It's fine. Uh, Right. So later in the episode, he broke down on camera and had to be convinced to stay in the competition. Holly was wildly vilified in the wrestling press and on the internet. He's branded a bully, but he didn't really care. He was protecting the business and now said that he would do it again. W received some complaints and it caused a little bit more scandal when it aired. W won't want you remembering this. Whatever you think Holly was right or in the wrong, he was definitely in the fucking wrong. How was he in the right at all? He got WWE a ton of bad publicity such, uh, at, as the time, and several top stars such as Triple H probably renounced Holly's action. An incident such, such as this one isn't likely to happen during the forthcoming episode of the show. But I should say something interesting enough, right? Brock Lesnar and Bob Holly had a match very early on in Brock Lesnar's career. I think maybe like a year, year and a half after he'd been properly introduced. I think you know where I'm going here. And maybe he was a little bit rough with Brock. And when Brock picked him up for the powerbomb, he slipped and he landed on his fucking neck. If Bob Holly wasn't so rough, or if Brock... I'm not saying Brock Lesnar did it on purpose, but I'm saying with someone Brock Lesnar's power, if you're going to fucking fuck around with him, he's going to try and pick you up and powerbomb. He lands on your neck, you're out of it. And now you're on the independent scene as former WWE superstar Bob Holly. So fuck you for doing that. (laughs) Well, I remember um, it was a Royal Rumble and a rookie had come in. And you've got Eddie Guerrero, Chris Benoit, and Bob Holly as yeah. well. 
they're all, they've got him in the corner. I know he was being a dick. It was, it was it Maven? Uh, no, it weren't. It was, no, uh, it was Daniel uh, D- Daniel Puder. Puder. Yeah, uh, yeah. And they've got him in the corner. They're chopping him. And you even hear the commentators say, "Yeah, Bob Holly don't like rookies." I know, but it, it shouldn't be made a joke. It is bad. Uh, and then he gave her an interview talking about it, saying that Bob Holly basically beat me down from head to toe for the minute I stepped to the ring and was pretty relentless with everything. One of the rookies watching from the apron had said, had his say, I see Bob's boot just go straight into Matt's jaw and you can see the blood coming from his mouth and the next boot goes right into Matt's eye. He was confused and I was confused too. Um, so Al Snow has been a trainer on Tough Enough what tells X-Pac about it on X-Pac's show. you got Bob coming in and now Bill DeMott the hard-ass in season three and there's this little competition as to who can get the hard-ass gimmick over more. So Bob comes in with his neck hurt from Brock Lesnar and he got all the stress and it was actually between him and Bill. A little bit back and forth, you see who the biggest badass is and, you know, you get the match and boom, Bob took a liberty. He just popped Matt. X-Pac says he saw the footage and thought it was a bit much. Al Snow responds in agreement. Oh, it was. He knocked him out. Al Snow continued, Matt didn't do anything. Matt just came in and then Bob, just whatever frame of mind he was in, just hauled off. Just blasted him and knocked him and completely knocked him out and then proceeded to just keep baiting him up. Well, Bob Holly had come across what Al Snow said and was a complete disagreement. He said Al Snow did an interview on X-Puck and he basically threw me under the bus and said, I got in the ring and hauled and just punched and cold-cocked him and knocked him completely out cold. If you go back and listen to the interview that Al did, he said, I hauled off and cold-cocked him and I knocked him out. I did not touch him with my fists at all. I gave him a boot to the stomach and gave him a few forearms and backed him in the corner and never punched him in the face once. I don't know where Al got that from, but all of a sudden now Al is telling everybody I cold-cocked him and say, what match was he seeing? Well, no, he didn't punch him in the mouth. He kicked him in the mouth. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I'm and gonna, in the eye. Yeah, I don't want to talk about Holly trying to defend himself because <laughs> no matter what happens, you know, it's a fucking... It's, it's a horrible thing. People yeah, should take liberties. It's like me shooting you with a gun saying, yeah, I never shot you with a knife. <laughs> <laughs> that it's is, true. It is true. That is, that is true. That is true. Uh, well, season three is a lot meaner, but I'd rather have Taz uh, and then Holly and not Demot. Now, I know I've called... Bob Holly, a piece of shit. Don't get me wrong about that. Bill DeMott, fuck me, man. Right, let's let's start with Bill DeMott. Well, Bill DeMott was ousted from the WWE in 2015 due to allegations of misconduct during his time as a trainer in the company's developmental territories, Deep South Wrestling, Florida Championship Wrestling, and NXT. One of the most infamous allegations came when a picture surfaced of Luke Gallows giving Zack Ryder a naked stink face. <laughs> DeMott what recently... did you just say to me then? What? <laughs> what happened? What was the incident? <clears throat> a picture surfaced of Luke Gallows giving Zack Ryder a naked stink well, face. That's what I thought you said, but I had to make sure. Well, you know what the stink face is, don't you? Yes. The, the, Rikishi, the famous Rikishi move in the corner. Would but... you rather have a naked <laughs> stink face from Luke Gallows or stink face from Rikishi? I've, um... I thought you were going to ask me, would you rather have a naked stink face with Gallows to get in the ring with Bob Holly? But, uh, <laughs> uh, I, yeah, Gallows, right. But then again, he's in love with Nia Jax at the moment in time, so I don't really want to get in between anything there. Do you know what I mean? Um, he yeah. likes some beer. Yeah, go on. Well, DeMott said the incident occurred at the end of a week of hard training. <laughs> the trainees decided they wanted a day off, so they offered to make a deal with DeMott. Someone, presumably Ryder, 
a stink face with a jelly donut in his mouth and did not accept it. <laughs> the stunt worked and the developmental wrestlers were excused from practice that day. Well, Demott said the reason the incident surfaced six years after it occurred was because a disgruntled ex-employee decided to leak information when he was fired from the WWE. There was no malice behind the stunt, but rather it was a deal agreed upon by everyone who was in attendance. Well, they made a deal and they didn't want to train. They make a deal. And what's the deal? I give someone a squisher, bare ass with a jelly donut in their mouth. I look around at 40 people and I went, deal. Guy gets naked, other guy sit in the corner with a jelly donut in his mouth, he runs across the ring, hits the Rikishi ass bump, squashes it all over the face. Funniest thing I've seen in my life, Demot said. Everybody goes, okay, we're done, everybody can go home. No training, no nothing. That was a deal. Six years later, that picture comes out on the internet. Bill Demot makes students train naked. Now, was it the smartest deal I ever made? No, but it was funny as hell. You're in a room with a bunch of people on the same page, they're tired for the week. Give me a deal and we're out. They made a deal, we stuck to the deal. Basically, he said that, yeah, so someone else, uh, and then suddenly, I'm an internet sensation overnight. There was no malice, there was nothing. It was a story, innocent, with a bunch of men and women who trained together every day, and when things weren't going their way, turned around and handed it to someone else. Tomorrow all over again, he probably wouldn't change what he did. He said, developmental wrestlers start to get jaded as training intensifies, and he wishes he helped them understand the process better. <laughs> Shit. Well, to be honest, I probably would do the exact same thing, but let them know the repercussions. You start to feel entitled. Now you're paying me, and now I don't want to do it, so you have to find a way to make me feel better about myself. So that was on me, Demot said. There's only one thing I would tell myself now. Stick to what you know. Don't worry about hurting people's feelings about themselves. Help them realise early on what's needed and what is. WWE had nothing to do with building up these days. The former Hugh Morris was embroiled in a scandal in early 2015. Several of DeMott's former trainees came forward and levelled some pretty heavy accusations against him, including unsafe training methods, homophobia and other abuse. Big Bill's faces all over the seasons 3 and 5 of Tough Enough were reacted as a head coach. Although Bill's training methods were above board, he was on camera and he toned down his drill sergeant routine. They were still... There were still the odd questionable moments, such as when Demott broke down on camera following the Bob Holly Matt Capitelli incident, addressing the group in a house meeting. Demott got serious and delivered the speech while fighting to hold back the tears. There are motherfuckers who are going to push your buttons. Every night on the road, people push my button, kill them. Because as a man, I've swallowed more than my share. The bigger man swallows shit that he don't want to swallow. You can choose to beat it. Or let it beat you. It was pretty haunting stuff. DeMott clearly had some issues with guys ribbing him in the past. WWE isn't going to mention the fact that DeMott was a former trainer on the show given recent events. Uh, We're going to do 10 things. So now we've got some more little facts about Bill DeMott. There have been many stories about DeMott's developmental misdeeds, but former TNA star and indie regular Joey Ryan was one of the first to care about DeMott's training. Ryan attended a WWE Performance Center tryout camp in autumn 2013, a few months after his TNA release. The well-traveled wrestler did not have many kind words to say about Mr. DeMott. Among the accusations that Ryan leveled against the NXT trainer were that DeMott talked down Ryan's pre-WWE international accomplishments and accredited his WWE access to the company, not Ryan. He claimed that they had to retrain him. Continuing in the same vein, 
Demott apparently told the group that nobody on the Indies is as good as the NXT crew. Interesting that, since WWE have continued to court and sign the best independent wrestling talent in the world, from Finn, Prince Devitt, Balor, to Hideo, Kenta, Itami, to Kevin, Steen, Owens. Another quote that Ryan attributed to Demott was, don't wrestle the way John Cena does, wrestle the way that I tell you to. While Cena's wrestling um, style might not be to everyone's taste, he's the biggest star of the last decade and somebody that the developmental talents could obviously learn from. Prior to the NXT Fatal 4-Way Special on September the 11th, 2014, Ryan tweeted, Why doesn't Triple H ever take selfies with the guys Bill Demott trained? Ryan clearly still holds a grudge against Demott. <laughs> NXT was a Nazi camp, Ricardo Rodriguez. Add Ricardo Rodriguez to the list of XW Plus. Have things to say about Bill Demott. After getting his release from WWE, Ricardo was more than happy to spill the beans on top WWE management and talent in a series of shoot interviews. He criticised Demott's training methods while he was training under him down in NXY. He said that Demott would run people into the ground to the point they would get injured. During this shoot interview, he said NXT in 2014 was like Nazi camp. Conversely, he said his experience in NXT, Florida's Championship Wrestling, was a positive one and that people would have fun, whereas in NXT, although they were building machines, nobody was having fun. Everyone's hurt and people resented Demott for it. Former Deep South Wrestling talent Kevin Matthews blamed Demott's kill drill training routine as a reason for the increasing injuries under his watch. Matthews would have much more damning things to say about Demott, which we should return to later. When Demott returned to the promotion in early 2000, it was under the Hugh Morris name. This time, however, he was a lot more focused and meaner and began to squash opponents. This this long. However, as new bookers Vince Russo, my mate on Twitter, and Eric Bischoff had a new direction for Demott. He was repackaged as a member of the stable The Misfits in Action, MIA, under the name General Hugh G. Rection. Booker T's new alias, G.I. Bro, was bad. Chavo Guerrero as Lieutenant Loco was poor, but huge erection? Come on. He was saddled with a name that basically said, Giant Stiff Penis. Not a fan of the name change and was deeply embarrassed when WCW flashed his new full name across the bottom of the screen. Huge erection also cost him more in terms of royalty checks because WCW would not put out any merchandise on him because the name was deemed too racy. I am quite a fan of huge erections. Well, like many wrestlers of the era, Demott has had problems with painkillers and other substances. Wrestlers in the 90s were flying high and Bill was no exception. In WCW formed a clique known as the Chubba Bubbers, also featuring the public enemy and Devin Storm, whose mission was to party as hard as they could every night. He talks about his drug abuse in detail in a chapter in his book, The Last Laugh, entitled The Chemist. Some of his revelations are quite shocking, even for wrestling. Bill said, I would get my bag and pop ten somers in my mouth. I would chew them, wash them down with vodka and grapefruit juice, take a shower and get ready to party. I'd never been drugged up in some way, shape or form. I would get on a plane to leave the country with a pocket full of cocaine and a bottle of somers and assorted pills. Of course, recreational drug use was not just because of his fondness of partying, but because he broke his neck due to years of bumping in wrestling ring. Demott claims that he should have died ten times and expressed surprise the fact he was able to keep his pill problems under the radar for so long. Benoit double murder and suicide in 2007, WWE were in damage control mode. While retired wrestlers like Mark Merrow were coming out of the woodwork and condemning WWE, the company sent some of its more well-spoken performers out to counter them. While the likes of Bret Hart and Chris Jericho handled questions with dignity and, crucially, honesty, 
people like Ken Kennedy and Chavo Guerrero did more harm than good. A recently fired DeMarc gave his own series of interviews when he defended Benoit. He didn't defend what he did, which is indefensible, but he did say that it was wrong to ignore Benoit because of his contributions to the professional wrestling business. He also attacked people like Steve Austin's ex-wife, Deborah McMichael, for coming out and exposing the business further. Bill DeMott was a friend of Benoit's and actually called by Nancy, uh, Benoit before Nancy's murder to see if he wanted to go for a beer, as he and Benoit both lived in Atlanta. More serious allegations. After DeMott's WWE release in 2007, a former Deep South Wrestling trainee, Kevin Matthews, posted a blog on MySpace account detailing his experience with Bill and his training Matthews. Methods. It was a damning account that painted the current WWE head trainer of NXT in a very bad light. Matthews stated by calling DSW hell and saying that Bill DeMott wasn't fit to train anyone for anything except all-you-can-eat competitions. He also said DeMott played favourites and that if you kissed his ass, you would get ahead. There were more stories and allegations, including recounting the incident where, sick of his behaviour in training, MVP offered to fight Bill for real, but DeMott backed down. Former head of development Mike Bucky, Simon Dean slash Nova, confirmed Matt 2014 shoot interviews, which also given his own negative praise of DeMott. Five years later, in 2012, after Mott's rehiring and promotion to head trainer of SCW, Matthews took to Twitter with more allegations of abuse and misconduct. <laughs> Matthews sent out a series of hum- humorous or humorous tweets, as it were, from DeMott and himself. Some of the highlights include, I tried to break Nick Mitchell's ankle, Spirit Squid Mitch, for no reason, which is why he got switched to Ohio Valley Wrestling. Hashtag democracy. Yeah. John Trainers, uh, John Cena's trainer Rob spoke out against me three weeks ago on how I was training kids too hard. I got him fired 24 hours later. Hashtag democracy. I make students do Hindu squats on all four top turnbuckles while two guys are crisscrossing and hitting the ropes. Completely safe. Hashtag democracy. I made Angel Williams do 40 ups and overs till she snapped a patella tendon in half and was out for nine months. True story. Democracy. WWE hired Carly solely to feud with Taker. They needed him to learn how to work. I made him run miles. They were pissed. True story. Democracy. Well, it's pretty sensational stuff. With a recent allegation only just being made public, we went to see if Matthews or any of Demott's other students will have more stories. And it just sounds, again, like he's a bit of a cunt. You know what I mean? Like, it really does. Like, if you've been littling people, you're meant to be helping these guys out. You know, guys that basically know fuck all about the wrestling business and you're being twats. I think that that is is fair enough, you know. Um, So, season four, we move on season four, and the cast, well, we had Chris Narocki, Daniel Puder, who was a winner, he's the one that nearly broke Angle's arm. Daniel Rodemeyer, Rodemeyer was released from his contract on August 22nd. Justice Smith, an American gladiator. He was also an actor in Thor and, like Mike, professional kickboxer and competitor on Tough Enough. John, John Meyer. How oh, did I miss that one? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Mike Mizanin, runner-up, eventually signed by WWE and wrestles as a jobber known as The Miz. Uh, Nick Mitchell, signed by WWE's Mitch in Spirit Squad. And Ryan Reeves, signed by WWE's Skip Sheffield, later as Ryback. Yeah, so, I mean, this is the most successful cast of Tough Enough, and we'll just run through what they did and didn't do. So we've got Tough Enough contestant stats from Season 1 through to 5. Uh, and Season 1, 
total titles won five. Total pay-per-view matches 13. Pay-per-views headlined zero. Season two, total titles won zero. Total pay-per-view matches two. Pay-per-views headlined zero. Season three, total titles won nine. Total pay-per-view matches 53. Pay-per-view headlines three. Season four, titles won 15. Total pay-per-view matches 102. And pay-per-views headlined nine. Season 5, total total 1, nil. Total pay-per-views 4, pay-per-views headlined nil. It's safe to say that season 4, followed by season 3, were the better ones. So you had, like, season 3, you had John Morrison. Well, Morrison pushes the third season into second place in each of their categories. He's had no help from his fellow Tough Enough contestants, though. His co-winner, Matt Capelli, Matt Capitelli, we talked about him. And uh, the rest of the cast, like so many of the men and women who come Tough Enough, had no WWE whatsoever uh, the grapplers from season 4 when 1 million was on the line outperformed many of the winners and losers from the other editions of the reality series strangely enough the man who came away with a victory in 2004 made less of an impact than the three he lasted on the show first man is Daniel Pewter with an MMA background a healthy supply of swagger and natural ring talent it looked as if WWE had found a star in Pewter his brief stay with WWE he defeated Hardcore Holly on a few house shows he knocked off The Miz in a Dixie Dog Fight at Armageddon 2004 and competed in a 2005 Raw Rumble. Uh, as a wrestler in the developmental system, he faced Mr. Kennedy and Chris Benoit. Yeah, Pewter is most known for an incident that derailed his career before it began. Angle challenged stuff enough contestants, daring one of them to take uh, take him down. Very off script, Pewter accepted, but quickly turned the work match into a shoot. He soon had Angle in a Kimura lock. The whole nearly broke Angle's arm, as Pewter told title match wrestling. Having the Olympic gold medalist in such a precarious situation, situation became his claim to fame. It surely, don't call me Shirley, didn't do him any favours with the WWE brass, so as Pewter was gone from the company less than a year after that clash of Angle. Still, he got a chance to mix it up with Hall of Famer caliber star Benoit, work a few pay-per-views and scratch his name into the WWE timeline with that wrenching of Angle's arm. Ryback. Before adopting the Ryback moniker, Reeves was a weightlifter trying to earn his way into a wrestling world. LeBlanc behemoths made it into the Final Four tough enough, but fans voted him off the show. A year later, Ryback entered the WWE developmental system and has been with the company in some form ever since. He was among men- many during that season and others who had the prototypical WWE look, but he has carved out a better career of the company than any of his fellow powerhouses from tough enough. And we know about Ryback, you know, he's had controversial things happen to him as well, apparently injuring CM Punk. We had the beef between uh, Ryback and CM Punk that we know about, and of course getting uh, released. But he says the big guys look at you one day, I guess. And finally, Mitch. Mitch. Nick Mitchell didn't last long on Tough Enough. The former college football player was eliminated first, having to watch the rest of the series from home. As Mitch of the Spirit Squad, though, he would experience a brief stay in a WWE spotlight. The company signed him to a developmental deal in 2005, sending him down to Deep South Wrestling. Mitchell tagged with both Matt Stryker and the man who had become Ryback during his time there. A switching gimmick earned him a promotion. Not long after he was moved to OVW, he was one of five male cheerleaders who stormed Raw in 2006. The Spirit Squad was a proverbial double-edged sword. It afforded him chances to battle major stars, major stars, from Triple H to Cena, Edge to Ric Flair. The gimmick also limited his and his partner's progress, though. How much of a 
could a gaggle of cheerleader wrestlers get over with the crowd? The answer ended up being the group disbanded by the end of the year. Its most famous member, Dolph Ziggler, went on to enjoy a long, fruitful run with WWE. Mitchell, meanwhile, exited the company after being released in 2007, briefly coming back last year or the year before. Yeah, it was a couple of years ago, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah um, up next we've got The Miz. The- so The Miz, the only WWE champion on the entire Tough Enough season, of course, winning that, cashing in money in the bunk on Randy Orton. And so he did a bit of good in that life as well. Of course, uh, eight-time Intercontinental Champion, US Champion, multiple-time Tag Team Champions, main event at WrestleMania 27 against John Cena. And now is in the midst of a feud with Daniel Bryan at this moment in time. Anything Miz touches turns to gold. Ten years, uh, no injuries, reliant as there is anything else in WWE. He is the reverse Daniel Bryan, and I am loving it from him. But back to more tough enough. Well, while WWE is a much different place than it was during the first four seasons of Tough Enough, you can be certain that performers are going to be a little bit jealous and wary of anyone who makes it into the company via the competition since they haven't properly paid their dues. While it can hardly be considered their fault for accepting a gig, uh, for accepting a reality, for accepting a reality television gig and a lucrative contract, wrestlers cannot take it out on management, so they take it out on the wrestler. That is what happened with pretty much everyone from Tough Enough who made it to the main roster in the past. They were hazed, tested in the ring and backstage. Maven's post-release shoot interview that Hardcore Holly beat the shit out of him <laughs> at house shows for months. Chris Nowinski was also roughed up in the ring when he debuted on Raw in 2002. The cuts and bruises from house show matches were clearly visible when Nowinski performed on WWE TV. The most blatant of these hazings came on camera at the 2005 Royal Rumble. Daniel Puder was entrant number three. Entrance number one and number two? Two. Chris Benoit and Eddie Guerrero. Puder was like a lamb to the slaughter. After just a couple of minutes of chopping... His night got worse when Hardcore Holly entered at number four. They just destroyed Puder, cutting his chest open and taking it in turns, chopping him. Announcer Jim Ross made it no secret of what was going on. Initially, Holly already disliked Puder because what a Puder had been calling his friends and telling him that he beat Hardcore Holly for real after Holly put him over on house shows. So he kind of deserved it, really. Well, the main draw, tough enough, at least for prospective contestants, was that the winner would receive a WWE contract. The whole point of the show was for the budding grapplers to prove they were tough enough and deserve a shot at WWE stars and above all others. It's supposed to be the survival of the fittest, the best of the best. In reality, however, even if you don't win the competition, anything if it sees anything in you, you're going to sing, sign you regardless. Knowing that you're going in must boost some people from the competition. What? Knowing that going in must be a boost for some of the competitors. From season one, Chris Nowinski and Josh Matthews were signed, even though Maven and Idia won. Matt Morgan was snapped up after season two. Two. Despite the fact Jackie Gator and Linda Miles won. Marcy, the Boogerman Wright, and The Miz were signed from season four when Daniel Puder was crown winner. W won't want fans knowing this. How are they supposed to get invested in drama when if Dory likes somebody from the show, there's nothing stopping them from signing them? They even signed Cameron from season five, and her favourite match of all time was Alicia Fox versus Melina. <laughs> oh my days. Oh, that was a classic. That was, I remember that, yeah. yeah. When WWE devised 
tough enough. They probably thought it was going to find the next superstar on the level of Steve Austin or The Rock. Considering Tough Enough was originally shown on MTV and did excellent ratings, they, they more than likely assumed that they were going to make their guy a TV star before eventually making him a wrestling star. But nobody who has won Tough Enough has come close to approaching that level. The most successful contestant, The Miz, didn't even win it. Season 1 winner, Maven, looked promising but never but never fulfilled his potential. Co-winner, co-winner Nidia, only lasted a couple of years. While she was good in her role as Jamie Noble's girlfriend, she was as experienced as he was. Miss Jackie and Linda Miles never made any waves in the business. Jackie was too similar to other divas, and Miles apparently developed a massive ego and was hated by her peers. They both no longer they both they're both no longer active in the business. John Morrison had some, some had some success, but like Maven, he never really lived up to his true potential. While his season three co-winner Matt Capitelli's career was cut short due to a brain tumor, WWE never forgave. WWE never, <coughs> WWE never truly forgave Puda for the angle incident, and they thought he wasn't improving quickly enough in OVW. Let him go in September 2005 before his year-long contract ran out. And what about Andy Levine from season five? First. He didn't properly sell a slap by Vince McMahon or Stone Cold Sunner during a Raw segment. Then he failed WWE's wellness policy. He was released in April 2012, having never wrestled a match on <laughs> WWE TV. All right, so we've got some facts now. So we're going to go through every person that was ever on Tough Enough. And if we've got an interesting fact, we will tell you. We've told you a couple, you know, Chumper and Kendrick's wives out there. But season one, Taylor Mathney works as a Hollywood makeup artist. Nydia... Gwenard, co-winner of season one, works in culinary arts. Christopher Naminsky, not employed with the company. Expert on concussions. Chris Nifong, not employed with the company. Uh, Billy Joe Anderson, not employed. Bobby Joe. Bobby Joe Anderson, not employed with the company. Daryl Cross, not employed with the company. Same with Pauline Thomas. Same with Victoria Victoria Tabor. Uh, Josh Lambert, current play-by-play commentator for uh, Impact Wrestling. is Josh Matthews. Maven Huffman, co-winner of season one, hardcore champion. Uh, Shadrick McGee, not with WWE. Neither's Jason Debris. And Greg Whitmore went to join various other promotions. Season two, Aaron Lewis, not employed with the company. Jackie Gaydar competes Miss Jackie, co-winner of season two. Married to Charlie Haas. Yes, she is. Danny, not employed with the company. Shane with Alicia. Same with Annie. Jesse Ward, not employed, but she's a TV producer. Jake Derren, not employed with the company. Hawk, not LOD Hawk, not employed with a company. Matt Morgan, recently released by TNA. Uh, Linda Miles, co-winner, only have somewhat notable thing is, is that she had breast implants, which were explained via storyline as permanence for them from a clothesline. From hell, no joke. <laughs> <laughs> Peter, not employed with a company. Uh, Roberts Felt, not where as well. Kenny Lane, works for TNA Wrestling under the name Kenny King. And season three, do you just say many people in this season never work with WWE or doing anything? I figure if we've got a list, we're just people who are never employed with the WWE. So we've got Eric, Jamie, Jill, Jonah, Nick, Justin, Kelly, Lisa, Chad, Rebecca, Scott, and successful contestants. John Hannigan wrestled under the name Johnny Nitro and John Morrison, co-winner of season three, ECW champion, Intercontinental champion, WWE tag team champion, world tag team champion. Matt Capitelli, uh, brain Tumor 2007 and Brain Tumor 2014. No, I can't do that. Uh, Matt Capitelli unfortunately passed away. Season 4, a.k.a. Million Dollar Tough Enough. 
we got Daniel Puder, winner season four, worked for TNA and Ring of Honor, made uh, Angle nearly tap out. Uh, Mike Mizzenin wrestles as a jobber known as The Miz, WWE on WWE TV, WWE Champion, Money in the Bank winner, US Champion, WWE Tag Team, World Tag Team Champion, IC Champion. Gosh, for a jobber, he's won a lot of titles. Uh, Chris Naraki, he's not with a company. Ryan Reeves wrestles as Ryback, yeah. or used to wrestle on Ryback, uh, as Ryback on WWE TV. Nick Mitchell wrestles with Mitch the Spirit Squad. He was World Tag Team Champion. Daniel Wadamar, not employed with the company. Justice Smith, who became Gladiator on American Gladiators. And was in Thor. <coughs> season 5. Andy Levine, not employed with the company. Winner of Season 5, works for WWC. Luke Robinson, works on the independent circuit. Jeremiah Riggs, not employed with the company. Uh, Christina Clawford, not employed. Last FCW Divas Champion. AJ Kirsch, not employed with the company. Same with Martin Kalsus. Same with Eric Watts. And Michael Zaki. Uh, Ivelisse Valles works for TNA and Shine now. Only female member of Aces and Eights. Rimmer Faki, Miss USA 2010 winner. Has it done jack shit in wrestling? Michelle Duggan, not employed with the company. Apparently was on America's Next Top Model in 2005. Matt Capacone, not employed with the company, worked for Shakara and Ring of Honor at one time. Ariane Andrews, WWE's ultimate troll. This little fucker made fun of, was made fun of for months by saying Melina versus Alicia Fox. Sorry, by saying Melina versus Alicia Fox was a favourite match. She was the first eliminated, but she was the most fucking successful. What the fuck, WWE? She's now aligned with Brodus Clay as one of the Funkadactyls, or she was. Yeah, she was. Well, that took forever, and we still have new rule statistics left. Yay! So we've got two, two contestants that became world champions. Four contestants that became any champion in the WWE. One Money in the Bank winner. One contestant that was on both Tough Enough and NXT. Four contestants with WWE. Two contestants currently employed by TNA. 43 contestants that were contracted to WWE. Three contestants that competed at WrestleMania. And just one that competed in the main event of WrestleMania title. Uh, for the WrestleMania main event for the W title. And one that is The Miz. <sighs> Lovely. Uh, so we talk about hazing, right? You know, we mentioned that earlier uh, and about stuff that happens backstage. One thing we haven't gone into is the wrestler's court, where we're going to have a look at right now. No, wrestler's court, as in <laughs> C-O-U-R-T. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, the Undertaker's stature among his peers made him the perfect person to serve as a judge of wrestler's court. The very real collection of talent that meets when WWE employees needed to hash out differences on the road. It is most commonly Undertaker was one of the most respected wrestlers in the back. The concept of wrestler's court was first stated by Dutch Mantel, a.k.a. Zeb Coulter in WWE, years ago as a way of boys to settle their differences backstage. He brought in the concept soon after... He brought the concept... Soon after the murder of Bruder Brosie, as Mantel happened to be in the arena when the stabbing took place, not wanting another backstage altercation to ever escalate to that level again. So Wrestling's Court maintains order behind the scenes and acts as a check and balance system show there is no one above the law. The Undertaker was usually the judge, though JBL and Triple H sat in the helm on a number of occasions too. There are prosecuting attorneys as well as defence attorneys who backed up the accused. Punishments are usually on the lighter side of things. The guilty party usually settling all deals 
through gifting bottles of Jack Daniels, cases of beer or food, although some are popular figures backstage have been on the receiving end of many halves of justice in wrestler court. Supposedly sharing Matzo Ball soup with a writer's mother, accidentally spilling chicken crumbs on someone else's bags, or something as simple as someone taking the term diva a bit too literally, as you'll soon see, almost everyone had their day in court. Well, Max Stryker in wrestling court for misinterpreted comment that turned the entire locker room against him. Max Stryker was a misunderstood individual when he arrived on the scene in WWE. Stryker had gone on record saying that he isn't great socially, especially when talking to people he doesn't know well. And that, and that he was a bit of a loner in WWE. This rubbed a lot of people. This rubbed a lot of the locker room the wrong way and as a result he was perceived as cocky and obnoxious. Stryker made a statement which in the eyes of the locker room put Smackdown in a negative light when in comparison to this along with the general feeling of the locker room being against him landed him in wrestler's court. Matters reached their peak in a hotel lobby one night. JBL was intoxicated bugging Matt Stryker to come down from his room to talk in the lobby. Matt Stryker spoke about why he may have had heat with the boys in recounts. What happened once he met JBL in the lobby? I suck socially. I have nothing to talk about. I don't want to sit around and commiserate with all the people there. Johnny people were kind of cool with one another. And I knew a few of the guys from the Indies in WWE. But I was really always kind of by myself. And I think that people took that as I was cocky. I wasn't. It was because it, I was so damn fucking weird. And... Then Tommy Dreamer and Edge became my friends and I became quasi-normal. Some things I said were misinterpreted. The original plan was for me to be on both Raw and SmackDown during the time of the brand split and do commentary for both shows and to be the wise-ass, heelish teacher. I had gone from Raw to SmackDown and I made the comment that it was like going from college to high school. I didn't mean it based on the maturity. I went on ba- based on how relaxed it was. In college or Raw... You know, oh, oh, I've got to study, I've got to go to study all, all night and I can't hang out. In high school, it's like, hey man, let's make a joint round the autumn road. Throw the thing around and then we'll go Mrs. James' class and ditch eight period. That's what I meant. It was during a time in a climate where a lot of the veterans were adamant about letting the younger guys understand what the business was about. And it was misunderstood and mistaken. The next day, I got to TV. No one would talk to me. People turned away. I was like, what the fuck's going on? Some of the guys said, hey, I heard you said that this is the fucking high school. Well, once the train got going, perception became reality. Matt Stryker goes on further and talks about someone at the centre of the situation. Situation? <laughs> I was going to say situation. Chris Benoit. <laughs> Chris Benoit. Well, Chris Benoit in Reno, Nevada, everyone was down at the bar and he was very close to me, reading the right act in front of everyone. I mean, fucking screaming at me and I'm just standing there going, holy shit. There was a gift shop that stayed open and Chris went to the gift shop and he said, come with me. Fuck that. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, if he's thinking about that incident now, he's like, whoa, fucking hell. Well, it was just me and him and I'm thinking, fuck, Chris Benoit, he's going to eat my face. <laughs> but let's the door and he said, listen, I've got to make an example out of you. Since I think it's great that you left teachers to come here. It shows passion for the business, but I need to make an example out of you or out of all of them. So when in front of everybody, I'm going to lay into you and I promise I'm going to help you. I thought, Okay, tough love, I get it. What most people saw was Chris Benoit being hard on me. What they didn't see was that he would call and text me all the time, asking if I wanted to work out. He would watch my matches, 
but only pull me aside when it was just me and him because I had to be the example. Also, I'll never forget that Chris said to me, listen, I need to set an example. You have to earn your way into the locker room. That's what we're really trying to do here, okay? So for right now, you can't change in the locker room. I'd find janitor's closets. I would find stairwells. I would actually kind of liked it because I'm a bit of a loner. I kind of like my own little space, you know. I can fart in peace and not have to worry about it. <laughs> but I remember at one live event, I was changing in the janitor's closet, went back to get my bag and my money was gone. I went to Chris and I say, hey, listen, I think the janitor got it. I don't know. And Chris would say, oh, fuck, you got your money stolen. I'll give you the money. What else? And that showed you what kind of a guy he was underneath all that. As for the JBL confrontation, this is what Stryker had to say. We were in Europe and I was dating a diva at the time. She was the only diva I ever dated. We were up in the room sleeping and my phone rang. It was one of the Bashams. It was almost like uh, whispering, don't go downstairs. JBL's drinking and he's looking for you. Don't come downstairs. Phone rings again. Basham. JBL wants you downstairs. Striker, you just told me not to go downstairs. Basham, yeah, I know. And I'm laying there and I'm laying there and the girl's laying there next to me. She's like... What are you going to do? It's like, you know what? I'm going to get my ass kicked plenty of my life. Fuck it. I went downstairs and JBL was sitting there holding wrestler's court, drinking, and all of his minions were around him, and I kind of just calmly sat down. I said, I heard you wanted to talk to me. Before JBL started saying anything, the girl that I was dating came walking in. I'm thinking, you're going to get me fucking killed here. And she said in front of everybody, if you're going to go through this, I'm going to go through this with you. I thought that was awesome, and Bradshaw was drinking, and he was going on and on. The big thing JBL will say, are you a piece of shit? Strike heart. Oh, so I'm a liar, then. Uh, no, you're not. Oh, then, you're a piece of shit. No, I'm not. Okay, so I'm a liar, then. And it went on and on and on, and I just kept giving the same answer, and he finally said something like, oh, you think you're big, or whatever, because you're dating some piece of ass diva? And I was like, John, with all due respect, this has nothing to do with her. JBL responded, well, yeah, I'll kick your ass right now. And he says that, and I thought to myself, okay, here's what I came for. This is the lamps. Beat it to my room, and everything will be fine. So I didn't realise he didn't get up. JBL remained seated, but I did. So it looked like I was the one that was itching to fight. And in my head, it's, you're six foot nine. You're the toughest Texan in town. Of course, you should kick my ass. But if I get at least one fucking lucky punch, or you slip and fall, I'm the king of the world. And he didn't get up. I don't know if it's because he was too drunk. I don't know if it's because he didn't want to hurt me. Because it's not a fight. You know what I mean? Me. But he didn't get up. And right there, it was like that moment where everyone was looking around like I was standing to fight. And he wasn't. And he just sat back and said, you're not fucking worth it. Matt Stryker stood up to JBL wrestlers court. And from then on, things went smoother for him. Until he was fired. <laughs> I'm sure that had nothing to do with the fact of that. Uh, up next, the entire Divas roster find themselves in a wrestler's court. Things embarrassing for the business. One of the oddest wrestler's court cases, the entire Divas roster teamed up in a dodgeball match against rookie Diva Search contestants at SummerSlam 2004. The Divas lost convincingly. The dodgeball match was thought to have been a shoot by the men backstage. And needless to say... They weren't happy about how the women fared. The perception was that the women on the roster lost to models with zero wrestling experience or much, a flat, or much athletic background, and that was embarrassing for the business. 
This was one of the very rare occasions The Undertaker was not the judge, Triple H was instead, which may be an indication of how silly this case really was. Ivory was there in defence for the women. Well, recent Hall of Famer Ivory said this in experience in the wrestler's court on kayfabe commentaries. So we had a wrestler's court. The Divas got brought to court on the charges they lost legitimately in dodgeball on a pay-per-view against the new Divas, the Bikini Girls, Diva Search contestants. Wrestlers thought that this was a horrible and a real admonishment. So the wrestlers thought this was horrible to the women as athletes and they made a big deal out of it. So Molly Holly came to me and she said, we need a defence attorney. Will you be our attorney? And I said, sure, yeah, I'd love to. What's the deal? What the charge? What's happening? So they filled me in and they had an actual defence they wanted me to pitch. So the funny thing, though, was that Triple H decided he was going to be the judge. And, of course, it's always, that's always Untaker's role. So right there sets the president of being just like Judge Judy, you know? This is a TV version of Wrestler's Court. Plus, what a stupid trumped-up charge. It was just silly. It was kind of like, I don't know why the cameras weren't in there. I wish they were because it was one of the highlights of my career. <laughs> so, Sean Morley, who was Val Venus, was a prosecuting attorney, and I was the defence attorney for the Divas. The Real Athletic Divas and Triple H was the court, the judge. So, our argument was, because it's wrestling, it was a work. We had to let them win, of course. The guys weren't having it. They weren't going to accept it. So, we got kind of a bum deal. I did a very dramatic super performance as defence attorney. I ripped my jacket off at one point and I got to shut down Jonathan Coachman. And I got to shut Jonathan Coachman down. It was awesome. Coach said something and I said, why are you even in wrestler's court? You're not a wrestler. You don't even belong here. Good hub in the room. Lots of laughter. Anyway, they try to shut me down as Triple H gets saying, Ivory, that's enough, Ivory. That's enough. You talk too much. You talk too much. But it's all good stuff. They didn't want to hear it. Just like Women in a Man show. Once the diva starts fighting to the top, the Wendy Richters, you know, any colour of element or women wrestling coming and get high rating, it just disappears. The same thing happened with White Sensor, gone. So the same thing with my defence attorneyism. It was, shut it down, shut it down. It's too hot. It's too right. Ivory proceeded to say the prosecutor had the bimbo divas up there, you know, to answer questions. They didn't even know what a squared circle was. We gave them questions about wrestling. They had no idea what was going on. So I think we would have won, but the guys had it for a ruse. They didn't want us to win. So then came the time to bribe the judge. Normally the accused would bring in a case of beer or something for the judge. And that was always work to lighten up the sentence, right? Well... What I did was packaged up a gift certificate to the Red Roof Inn and we offered it to Triple H. As everybody knows, Triple H always stayed and had been staying for years at the TV hotels, which is a nice hotel. And he would never, ever use a gift certificate to the Red Roof Inn. So I presented it to him in a really humble way. The whole room just fell out and they were totally digging it. It was really good. Well, the best part was shutting coaching down, though. Wish there were cameras in there, too. Uh, two. How Edgen Christian and former W writer Brian Gerwitz slammed himself for wrestlers court for kissing ass with the writers. Well, Edgen Christian had formed a friendship with a former W writer Brian Gerwitz. As you would imagine, talent adds the kind of relationship with writer was generally not accepted backstage. However, it didn't spiral into a big problem until Bob Holly witnessed Edge gifting Brian Gerwitz a Flash action figure he received at a signing from a fan. Gerwitz was a huge fan of The Flash, so this was looked upon as an act to get more TV time. There's also a rumour circulating that Edge and Christian had gone over to Brian's mother's house along with Brian 
where they had all had a nice dinner together. The locker room wasn't happy about this and Bob Holly made a scene out of it. As a result, the boys were called to wrestlers' court. It was the writer Brian Gerwitz who had the majority of the heat in this one. Well, Edge Christian and Gerwitz all revealed interesting details about this incident on the recent episode of Edge Christian Pod of Awesomeness podcast. So Edge said, I got a flash figure and I gave it to Brian because I was assumed, because he wore t-shirts, that he was a Flash fan. I was like, oh, I get this. I don't want it. I like Flash, but I'm a Thor guy and a Daredevil guy. So I give it to Brian. Bob Holly saw it. And the next thing you know, we're going to wrestler's court. <laughs> Brian says, yes, you gave me a Flash figure. That's indisputable. The big rumour, though, was that we were in Nassau. Up. My mother invited the two of you into my childhood home and we had Matzo Ball soup. There was some sort of rumour that we were invited to your parents' place that we went there and had a big feast, said Christian. Brian... Which would have been delightful, but that didn't happen. But that raised the era of a lot of people. You guys were completely prepared for it, though. That's the thing. Christian, well, we received an anonymous tip from, I don't want to say his name, because I don't want to incriminate him. We call him Bert Angel. <laughs> I wonder who that could be. I've no idea. <laughs> we received a call from him in between towns. He was like, you guys didn't get this call from me. You're going to wrestlers' court tomorrow. We're like, for what? And he's like, uh, for kissing us with the writers. We're like, okay. I just wanted to let you know, but he didn't get this call. I've got to go. Then he hang up. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brian said, let's set the stage. Wrestlers' court is a time honored tradition of self-policy within the locker room with the entire roster there. Not only the roster, but all the ages, referee, pretty much everybody. And I wasn't told that. I was told, it's a rite of passage. You get pizza and beer. I literally bought a box of pizza and a six-pack of beer because I thought it would be like a tribunal or something like that. Ah, uh, there would be like five people. We'd discuss a misunderstanding. Everyone will enjoy some pizza and beer and then we'll be on our way. No, so I burst from the door and there's like over a hundred people there. <laughs> so Christian goes on to say, so we got tipped off and we discussed it on the drive what we would do. And then we decided we were going to flip it back. It was a little risky, but we decided we were going to go this way. So we decided on making a book because a lot of the talent were getting book deals at this time. I think China's at the time. I think China's at the time was just about to come out, and a book as well. Hey. We got to the building early. We took a book, just whatever book it was, and we took Richie Posner, who used to do the props and the magic. We didn't tell him what was going on, but we just said, "Hey, we need this book, and we need the cover, and we need it to say Edge and Christian, how to kiss ass." I wrote to the top. Edge says, "Complete with a picture of us with total shit-eating grins." Christian, we'd also like to come up with this speech where we were going to talk about how we had been kind of pegged as ass kissers and we weren't going to hide it. And we weren't going to hide from it. We presented the book and we said there's a lot of ass kissers on this roster, so we'll take the fall for them. We just kind of owned up to all of it and we said at the end has been getting book deals. We should probably tell you now that you're not surprised when you find out, but because of the stuff we've been doing, we've received a book deal. You could just see the silence in the room. You could just see <laughs> silence in the room. You could hear a pin drop. All of these people's faces turning beet red. They were mad. Like these guys have all been here for like a year and they get a book already. We just pulled the book out. We read the title and the whole room to laughter. Bob Holly had tears in his eyes. 
He was laughing so hard. Steve Blackman was laughing. Triple H comes up and goes, guys, that's the best defence I've ever seen in my life. Oh, yeah, Brian said. You two are such a delight. So wonderful. But if you recall, the three of us were up there together. You two worked it like gangbusters. Remember that Bugs Bunny cartoon where Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck are playing to the big house and Bugs does his routine and gets the stand ovation of roses? Then Daffy does his shtick and it's like cricket silence. That, I think, is an appropriate approximation in wrestlers' court. You're using prop comedy. You're using funny anecdotes. JBL, the prosecutor, says, Well, Mr. Gerwitz here. And I said, Excuse me, my name's Gerwitz. He's so, if you're going to sham of a trial anyway, you can at least do this to get my name right. Thinking, it's tongue-in-cheek. They're like, like I said up to John. And nothing. In fact, even more anger. People need to be, like, restrained. Everybody was, you know, putting over Adam and Jay. You boys learned your lesson, you little scallywags. And I'm like, you le- I learned my lesson too. Just so much anger. And that spiraled out of control rather quickly. I remember Stone Cold walked out the hallway, walked out about halfway through. He went, God damn kid, I'm not having this, Jesus Christ. He had seen enough. Patterson came in when Stone Cold was leaving. I didn't really understand there was tension between me and the other people. So he was like, that little shit, he changed the finish of the matches. Which like just ramped it up on top of what was already happening. I think that was one of, if not the last wrestler's courts, because what we did showed how to turn it on its head, how to turn a really ridiculous arsenine infantile thing on its head, just to, you know, go with it. Well, Brian said, yeah, there was a distinct how-to and how-to-not handle wrestlers court. And Christian finishes up by saying, and both were shown that day. Well, I think the anomalous Burt Angel is a true hero story. Who knows that how Ed and Christian would have fared in wrestlers court without preparation on their side. We'll never know who Burt Angel was. Never. How the Miz got kicked out of the WWE locker room for accidentally spilling chicken crumbs on Chris Benoit's bag. Well, the career that Miz has had has been remarkable, especially when you think about the start of his career in WWE, all the hazing and bullying he experienced. The Miz already had a name for himself when debuting WWE from his time on MTV reality show, The Real World. Virtues locker room despised him strongly for where he came from. Locker rooms shared backstage are usually crammed with not a lot of space early in his career the Miz had made the mistake of eating fried chicken and in the process got some crumbs on Benoit's bag the Miz thought this was a light-hearted mistake minded until he found himself being yelled at like he'd never been before the Miz was ordered to wrestlers court where he was told he would be banned from using the live events locker rooms but could still use the tv locker rooms then later on he was told that he was banned from all locker rooms. The punishment lasted six months. We'll talk to Chris Jericho on the Talk is Jericho podcast. The Miz explained the situation. Situation. He found himself in. Yes. I did get kicked out of the locker room. Oh. It was a stupid thing by me. So I'm in the locker room. There's nowhere really to go. You know, there's nowhere really to put your stuff down. You would think as a WWE superstar and in the biggest travelling company that we would have amazing, immaculate locker rooms. That couldn't be further from the truth. Or like cubby holes. So we would have to squeeze in there and it was one of those small locker rooms. I sat down and started eating some chicken. As I'm eating the chicken, someone, Benoit, goes, hey, you're spilling chicken all over my bag. Yeah, but the thing is, Miz, right, I'm no expert when it comes to etiquette and locker rooms, right? But why would the fuck would you eat fried chicken in a locker room? 
You know, if he out, oh, don't bring it in. You know, that doesn't make any sense. Why would you eat it anywhere near Chris Benoit? <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Now, uh, in my mind, yeah. I wasn't spilling anything because I was still in that mode of having respect, having to respect everyone. Make sure you don't get anything on anything. And then it kind of escalated to it all. It's all. Then it kind of escalated to it got all over everyone's bags. I thought everyone was joking. I thought it was a joke out. I started watching my match back because that's what you do when you're brand new. You watch your match back. You try to figure out what you did wrong, how you are. When all of a sudden I heard Benoit. Oh, <coughs> I heard Benoit's aggressive screaming, and I got literally yelled at. Worse than I've ever been yelled at in my entire life. I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh my God. I mean, veins were popping out of his neck. He was so angry. I was so sorry. I didn't mean it. I was stuttering. I have no idea what to do. I just got up in the WWE. I tried to be as respectful as possible. And you know me. I'm a loud mouth and I like to talk. But when I first came up, I wasn't a talker. But everyone assumed that I was the character that I was playing on the show, the real world, and that it was one of those bad situations. Situations. And I got kicked out of the locker uh. room as a result. Well, the next day, he, Benoit, goes up and goes, Hey, Miz, you're not going to be kicked out of the locker room, but you just know that you, what you did was terrible. I was like, okay, yes, sir. The next day comes by and he was like, you know what? You kicked out of the locker room. Get your stuff out of the locker room, but you're only kicked out on live event days. Not TV days. So I was like, okay, great. So the next day, I come to TV, I put my stuff in the locker room. Benoit says, Miz, let me talk to you. People have been talking, rumblings and that, and everyone thinks you've been kicked out of the locker room for TV as well as live events. I was kicked out of the locker room for like six months and it was terrible. Like, it was awful. I would find ways, like, you know, how much Striker got kicked out of the locker room and he would do it right in front of people. He would change right in front of people. Me, I'm like, screw that. No one's going to know I'm kicked out of the locker room. I'm going to hide and find my own little locker room and do my own little personal locker room. The problem is finding the bathroom backstage that isn't a locker room is very, very difficult. I remember one time I had to go out into the audience in order to get to the bathroom and I'm using the restroom and there's a little kid going... I think the Miz is in there. And I'm like, this is the lowest of my lows in the career right now. Humble beginning for the Miz. Thankfully, a lot has changed since then. Mohammed Hassan in wrestler's court for a $2,000 bar tab and Eddie Guerrero incident. Well, perhaps the harshest of wrestler's court stories were saved for last. Mohammed Hassan had one of the shortest yet memorable tenures in WWE. In the space of seven months, he worked with guys like Hulk Hogan, John Cena, Leontaker, Mick Foley, Batista. Coming onto the main roster as a young talent and getting all of these opportunities right away stemmed a lot of jealousy and anger amongst the locker rooms. Hassan was thrown into the deep and right off the bat, leaving him with very little opportunity to be accepted by his peers in the back. Well, tensions came to a boil over in Japan when Bert Angel encouraged Mohammed Hassan... Oh, God. Oh, this is a good story. It's going to be a bad story about Kurt. Came to a boil over in Japan when Kurt Angle encouraged Mohammed Hassan to address Eddie Guerrero about removing the camel clutch from his arsenal as Hassan's finisher. Contrary to popular belief, Hassan said that Eddie was cool about it. They had a respectful conversation, but what Hassan didn't know was that Eddie's father created the move. And, as a result, Eddie would keep using it. Hassan just didn't know any better. He was still quite new to the business. Eddie hugged him after. It was when the rest of the locker room found out about that and outpouring the heat that Hassan for questioning Eddie's... For Eddie, wrestling court issued in a famous 2000 bar tab, Hassan had to pay for the boys as punishment. 
Obviously, Hassan, oh, Hassan recently appeared on Why It Ended with Robbie E. Podcast and talked about his troubling time in the WWE. Obviously, I would never disrespect Eddie Guerrero. Eddie Guerrero is one of the guys I looked up to because Eddie and Chris Benoit were two small guys in stature that were at the top of their card because of their talent and because of all their ability. You know, I don't think Kurt Angle meant anything by it at all. So I think Kurt was also a top guy who was who was at the time inexperienced in a professional wrestling universe, who was just looking out for top card guys. And I don't think Kurt meant anybody any harm. And Eddie definitely did not take it the way everybody else did. I think that was just kind of a torch that everyone else could grab and say, look, this kid is an awful human being. I don't know if everybody felt that way at the time, as I had plenty of guys who had my back. Well, and the $2,000 bar tab... I mean, that's a great story, but it is what it is. I'm not sure I'm not the only person who paid a bar tab at the expense of the other W guys. Was I treated fairly? Would it be different these days, you know? According to a lot of people, it would have been. But at the time, that's what I had to deal with. And I would never play the victim and say I was bullied. I had a lot of control over this situation. And there were plenty of things that I could change and could have done differently looking back on it. But hindsight's twenty twenty. So those were the cards that I was dealt. And I dealt with it at the time that passed too. And that wasn't the end of my career. It was months and months later when the Hassan character was taken off television. And at that time, I was getting along with everybody just fine. So those were a part of the growing pains of being in WWE and being a top guy. Being 24 years old, old and being very new to the business. Well, Hassan continues his rare speaking appearance. Wrestlers Court, I always felt like it was unjust. I never felt like it was a serious, you know, these guys that think I was disrespecting Eddie Guerrero. But Eddie never took it that way. Eddie and I had spoken about it and we had hugged and Eddie was fantastic about it. And I remember it was Sean Sapp who wrote that, who wrote that article a couple of years ago who said that the story was Eddie exploded and went nuts. Absolutely not. He was fantastic. I just kept saying I'm sorry, and he was awesome, and he never once lost his temper. He never exploded. He talked to me. We sat down, and we talked about the business and his father, and ultimately he gave me a hug. And that was the end of it for me and Eddie. It was everybody else who, to be honest, might have just been bored on another trip to Japan. They kind of took it and ran with it. Even then, I never took it that seriously, and I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. I don't think that guys like The Undertaker and Triple H and Sean ever really thought that I went up to Eddie and like slapped him in the face like that. But yeah, that is a story that just kind of took off and went to 10 in a matter of a night. And also, I should have known better, because I bet half the guys in the locker room knew that Eddie's father invented the move. It's my move, and I don't even know who invented it. And again, that just tells you my experience at the time. I was 24. I'll be 38 next month. So I look back on that and I see a kid who definitely needed some guidance, who did not know what he was doing or what he was getting into. Well, and I wish I could say this now, but at the time, a $2,000 bar tab didn't really hurt me too much. I honestly felt I needed some redemption. I'm not kidding. I felt horrible. I mean, that's Eddie's father, and I'm here disrespecting a legend like Eddie Guerrero. That's done some restitution that's needed to be paid. Whether 2000 was a fair amount, I guess questionable, but I felt like I needed redemption for that because I felt a gigantic ass for doing that. Mohammed High School principal enjoyed a lot in his seven-month run with WWE, which appeared to be a brave face for it all. I think you can give credit where credit's due, but wrestlers' court still exists today. 
Well, Xavier Woods, while talking with the actors from Super Troopers 2 on an April 14th, 2018 edition of his YouTube channel, Up, Up, Down, Down, which is a uh, world record holder. Yes. Had this to say. Wrestler's Court is like if somebody does something, like he steals my move. I can take him to Wrestler's Court. So we have the jury, we have everyone watching, we have the judge, and I plead my case. I can either choose someone to represent me or I can represent myself. We plead our cases, then the jury figures everything out. The judge makes his case, and if you don't want to do what needs to be done afterwards, let's like, <coughs> like let's say he has to now be my driver for the next two weeks, stuff like that. If he doesn't do that, then the bailiff, well, let's just say anything can happen. Well, gone on the days of having to buy copious amounts of alcohol, having to charge, changing the hallway for a half a year is punishment. Now having to be someone's driver for two weeks is ample punishment. It's great to see things have tamed down a bit and the culture of the things that have changed for the better in the back. So, rest is caught. I mean, I can't believe it's actually uh, still, a, you know, a thing like that. But uh, talking about bullies backstage, and I'll tell you something, Dan, there's been someone who probably unthinkable and that is Hornswoggle now Hornswoggle has been known as many things a leprechaun a mini gator a little bastard and even a legitimate son like one thing people might not realise is that his co-workers backstage he's simply known as Bully well during a shoot interview from 2014 Brodus Clay opened up about Hornswoggle's bullying tendencies he's a bully he is a bully Brodus said of Hornswoggle He's a verbal assassin. He picks. He judges. He's just a little <laughs> evil guy. Well, Brodus hasn't been the only one to open up about Hornswoggle's oppressing nature. In John Robinson's book, Rumble Road Untold, stories from the outside of the ring released in 2010, Kofi Kingston had much to say about the little, little ruffian. They had such a great little spin in the WWE, like in the Royal Rumble 2011. I think it's the biggest Royal Rumble. Yeah. When him, well, it was Hornswoggle and John Cena, then Kofi Kingston come down. I was having a laugh. Oh, no. <coughs> well, anyway, me and Hornswoggle travel together all the time, but I don't really let him drive because his car back home has pedal extenders that enable him to keep his feet at normal length so that if the airbag goes off, it won't suffocate them. When we're on the road, the rental cars don't have these pedal extenders, so if he wants to drive, he literally has to pull his seat all the way up to where his chest is on the steering wheel God forbid if we ever got into an accident and the airbag went off, he would suffocate. So I never let him drive. But whenever we travel with The Miz and Evan Bourne, they both up like they want Swoggle to drive. They really don't want to... They really try to get everyone riled up. Like, hey, why don't you let Swoggle drive? What are you going to do about it? And I'm like, look, I will not get in my car with him. Aside from his safety, I'm really concerned for our safety. Hornswoggle drives pretty recklessly. He's not what you call a conscientious driver by any means. So I think it's safer for everyone if I do the driving or if anyone but Swoggle gets behind the wheel, that's when we're the safest. They were all driving through Canada this one time and a Miz and uh, Evan were busting my chops about wanting to have Swoggle drive. So we stopped to look for gas. I went inside to pay and apparently they're all conspiring the whole time to see if I would do, see what, I would do if Swoggle got behind the wheel. So when I got out of the gas station, Hornswoggle was in the front seat. At the same time, I saw the Miz start to get out of the car. Now, me and Hornswoggle travel, and we spend so much time together that we can look at each other and start to read each other's minds. So at this point, as soon as the Miz left the car, I made eye contact with Hornswoggle, and I knew exactly what to do. <coughs> now, all this time, Miz thought he was going to rib me. He thought he was working with Hornswoggle. 
and he was on the good side of the rib, but not for long. When Miz left the car, I jumped in and Hornswoggle took off, leaving Miz at the gas station. I thought Hornswoggle would just drive like, uh, would drive up like 10, 15 feet and we'd all get a good laugh and let the Miz back in. But it turns out our hotel was about half a mile away and it was directly across this highway from the gas station. So Hornswoggle just kept driving. He left the Miz at the gas station, drove all the way to the hotel, parked the car. Then we were sat there and watched the Miz try to cross this busy highway on foot and make, it, and make his way back to our hotel. He was out there dodging traffic. <laughs> then he finally made his way to this really big field that he had to cross in order to get back to the hotel. Hornswoggle made him walk all the way back the entire way. I couldn't believe it. Well, it's funny because Hornswoggle can't be more than three and a half feet tall, but he bullies the Miz. He really is a bully. And there's nothing the Miz can do about it. So, I mean, they're, they're having to go at each other. We've seen it on kind of ride along on the WWE Network, haven't we? When uh, Ebony is uh, basically having a laugh. We see Kofi driving. But after all that, I mean, we've still got uh, a couple of big characters to go. And I think up next, we'll focus on Brian Christopher. Well, it's certainly a cleaner, more sober place than it has been. Pro wrestling is still a culture which struggles with legacy of drugs booze and a wild living the death of brian christopher on uh, the death of brian christopher a few weeks ago at a young age of 46 elicited the curious queasy mix of shock and jaded expectation which only pro wrestling deaths can pro wrestling kills and while it's certainly a cleaner more sober place than it has been it's still a culture which struggles with the legacy of drugs booze and wild living as multipliers on the effects of lifetimes of bad joints, concussions and broken bones. You undoubtedly remember him. Chris was one part too cool wrestling as Grandmaster Sexay with Scott Hottie during the height of the Attitude Era of the late 1990s. They were a gimmicky, ironic send-off of white hip-hop obsessed teens who outgrew the narrow confines of that role to become legitimately over. The irony was still there. Crowd weren't wrong for too cool for the same reasons they were for the Hardys or Edge of Christian, but the lid had come off. The thing pro wrestling does, where irony and sincerity melt to one another into a new just state, happened with Too Cool. Then they added Rikishi to the mix, an island savage sway by the power of friendship and dancing as they rocketed to the moon. Every now and then you see an act which doesn't get the titles to go with it. <clears throat> Every now and then you see an act which doesn't get the titles to go with however it is. The prime era Too Cool was like this. They won all of one WWF tag team title, but the pops were louder and consistent. Christopher made a good living on the WWF tag team circuit. What more could you really want? A lot. As it turns out, lost in a hazy limbo basic cable, the fact that Brian Christopher was a solid, sometimes spectacular wrestler in the USWA prior to coming to the WWF. The USWA might be best thought of the last of the territories formed when the CWA, home of Jerry Law and the iconic Andy Kaufman angle took place when the Von Erichs dominated WCCW. The USWA never took off the way owner Jerry Jarrett thought it would, but with the lasting flourishing of the old southern style of brawls and the blood and guts realism. Can I just say something? Sorry, before we carry on. <laughs> I hate to pat ourselves on the fucking back here, right? But it's like we've played this trick in our heads because... We talked about Andy Kaufman before on the controversial characters one. We talked about the Von Erichs and everything that happened there with them as well. We talked about WCCW, uh, of course. So everything is kind of connected in a weird 
controversial way. <laughs> Sorry. Well, Christopher was a big part of it. The old-timers couldn't carry a territory anymore. Being in their 40s and early 50s by the time the USWA got off the ground, it was left to a new generation and the children of the old to carry the torch as best they could. Against the changing taste and the financial stranglehold of Ted Turner and Vince McMahon, Brian Christopher was one of those children of the old vanguard. He wasn't actually Brian Christopher, but he was Brian Lawler, son of Jerry Lawler. He wrestled hard blood feuds with the sons of other big Tennessee wrestling personality, Jeff Jarrett, whose father was Jerry Jarrett. They gave her their all, and it wasn't quite enough. The WWF started sniffing around in the early 90s. The elder Lawler went to become a colour commentator, and the rest fell into place. Well, psychoanalyzing a relationship between the two people who don't know from a distance of 20-plus years and a 1,000 miles isn't really doable, but this much is clear. The vagarities of the relationship between Jerry Law and Brian Christopher weighed heavily on the latter. It was never directly mentioned that it was Jerry Law's son while they were in the USWA, seeming from the outside to be some, six, some mix of Christopher trying to avoid any appearance of nepotism and Law insisting his Brian Law was just Brian Christopher, a then Grandmaster Sexe. The kayfabe refusal to acknowledge his parentage went right on into his WWF career, often to hilarious effect. Jerry Lawler would talk Brian Christopher up on commentary. Brian Christopher was the greatest tag team wrestler ever, the greatest light heavyweight ever, the best looking man on the roster. Jim Ross would hint something was going on and Lawler would shut it up or beg it off as impartial commentary. Well, it was all a little weird, as humorous as it was, when the WWF began became WWE and finally did acknowledge that Brian Christopher was Brian Lawyer, son of Jerry Lawyer. It was an uncomfortable and jagged. In 2011, Christopher was brought back to WWE during a feud between Lawyer and Michael Cole. It was an uncomfortable segment, one of the most shameful things WWE has done this decade. Christopher came out to a little reaction, dressed in jeans with blonde hair. He danced to his music, then to silence. He cut a promo stating that his legendary father didn't want children, that he'd been abandoned by the king. Lola replied that he was gr- glad Christopher didn't use the Lorna name because he was ashamed of his son. It broke down from there with the audience sitting in fidgety silence until Jim Ross came to the ring to stand up for his former broadcast partner. Well, the point of pro wrestling is to feel just a little too real, but W's penchant for bringing up family drama and making fun of it always sucks. When Laura looked his son right in the eyes and machine, it felt deeply wrong. It felt so improper because Brian Christopher had problems with drugs and alcohol. The only reason he had to return to WWE was because he was released in the first place. In 2001, he was busted bringing drugs over the Canadian border. That was it for him. He returned to the Indies and sporadic WWE appearances much later, including the aforementioned disaster of an exchange with his father. His last appearances was in 2014. Like we said, he hung himself in a jail and we, we talked about his past discrepancies, you know, with DUIs and, and, and other trouble like this. Uh, and, and the fact is, is that WWE have helped wrestlers in the past, you know, with the rehab system. I know WWE gets painted as a villain in this, but... There, it, I don't, you know what I mean? There is a two-way thing about it. They've they've got to be want to be looked after, aren't they? You know, you yeah. can't. You know, we we've seen with tragedy in the. You know, there should be definitely sank in place uh, place with with pensions, as in if you if you're earning good money at this time now, just make sure if it doesn't make it in WWE that you have got something to uh, kind of fall back on. But what we do move on from there, and we'll talk about Jerry the King Lawler. So, the 1993 WWE controversy seldom talked about. 
Well, let's take you back to a time when Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart got along. Stories in wrestling was all over the news, and a WWE controversy took place outside the ring, causing Jerry Law to be taken off television taping for a short period of... I'm currently in the midst of going through each of the 1993 Monday Night Raws and pay-per-views in chronological order. While often looked down upon as a low point in WWF history, 93 and the new generation in particular holds nostalgic value for me. This was a time when I was watching pro wrestling weekly as a kid and eating out the palm of Vince McMahon's hand. Four Doinks versus Bam Bam Bigelow, Boston Booger and the Head Shrinkers at Survivor Series 93. I ate that up. Lex Express versus the foreign big evil man Yokozuna. I ate that up too. How about The Undertaker versus Giant Gonzalez or the semi-forgotten feud of Crush and Macho Man Randy Savage? You get the picture. I was oblivious to the questionable bookings during parts of WWF catering to a younger audience at the time. Well, I know how much you love WrestleMania 9. Uh, many fans, though, don't look back on Night Night 3 for the same rose-tinted glasses that you do. For good reason, the WWE controversy was constant. Night Night 3 was a strange time for Vincent Mann and the WWF. Vince had been indicted in federal court after a two-year steroid controversy engulfed the promotion, and as a result, had to take temporary seed control of the WWF over to his wife, Linda. This was also a transitional period for the company, as Hulkamania had run its course with Hogan leaving the company in mid-Night 3. Ratings and storylines plummeted, and Vince looked to build up new stars to take his place. See the All-American, Lex Luger. While the WWF steroid scandal was playing out all over the news at the time, one particular WWE controversy occurred, which somehow managed to go unnoticed, that being a statutory rape charge against Jerry the King Lawler. Well, in 1993, Lawler was indicted for raping and sodomizing a 15-year-old girl. Where are the fucking adverts again? Motherfucker. In 1993, Lawler was indicted for raping and sodomizing a 15-year-old girl, which caused him to miss Survivor Series 1993. The charges were later dropped after the girl admitted she fabricated some of the story. Before the case went to court, the girl admitted that she had made up part of her story, which was good enough for the charges to be dropped. Lawler soon later returned to WWF television with the matter never being brought up again. Well, according to Brian Lawler, Jerry's son, the girl followed him to his hotel room. When the time came for it to go to court... The girl's story fell apart because it was just a her boyfriend jealous. Once this information became known, all charges were dropped. How did the WWE controversy include involving Jerry Lawler change the Five Series Night Night 3? <clears throat> well, before these charges were brought forward, Jerry Lawler was in a bitter feud with Bret Hart, taking shots at his parents and family whenever he could. The storyline was building up towards a payoff at the Survivor Series 1993 pay-per-view for a traditional 4 versus 4 Survivor Series-style matchup. With the Hart family, Brett and brothers Owen, Bruce and Keith, versus Jerry Lawler and his three knights. The only problem was, if you were watching at the time, Lawler was nowhere to be found on the day of the pay-per-view due to charges being brought against him. He was swiftly replaced by Shawn Michaels with no explanation given to the viewing audience. This led to a rather unusual pairing of Shawn Michaels with three masked knights, Barry Horowitz, Greg Valentine and Jeff Gaylord. <laughs> <laughs> Dan, would you please take this seriously? <laughs> what is funny about that name? Or oh, Greg Valentine. Yeah. <laughs> now, we all know what happened four years later in Montreal. In this matchup, however, in 93, Brett had nothing but favourable things to say about Sean and how he did a superb job stepping in at last-minute replacement 
to Jerry Lawler. Yeah, so we all know what happened there with Sean Marks taking his place and then Brett and Owen banging into each other. So Superstar Billy Graham. Yeah, but I mean, the thing about Superstar Billy Graham is he's always been outspoken uh, since, you know, not being a part of the WF. And he's, he's you know, with, with steroid trial and the stuff with Hogan, you know, he absolutely blasted Hogan and, and said that he's a disgrace to this business. And he basically copied him for everything that he was. So, you know, there's a lot of controversy in there. I mean, there was a story like 2014, I think he had a couple of years to live. He's still going now and he's still got controversial things to say. What's the latest thing, Dan? Well, WWE Hall of Fame superstar Billy Graham went off on Ronda Rousey in a scathing Facebook post. Many wrestling fans and even some of the WWE superstars came away very impressed with Ronda Rousey after a ring-ring debut at WrestleMania 34. WWE Hall of Famer superstar Billy Graham, however, was apparently not one of them. Based on what Graham wrote on Facebook this week saying he's not a fan of Ronda Rousey would be a tremendous understate. Graham, a 2004 inductee into the WWE Hall of Fame and the company's heavyweight champion in 1977 and 1978, posted a photo of Rousey getting pummeled by Amanda inside the octagon and began with Ronda Lousey versus Triple H. So you can see where it was heading. Strap in, it's going to be a wild ride. Forgive the Brad grammar, syntax, punctuation, etc. This is what he wrote and how he wrote it. First off... To the fan who wrote, I find Ronda's use of Piper's gimmick nauseating. You, my brother, are dead on my man. I think so and absolutely revels that she does not have an original thought in her head. Damn, can't she be an original at anything? This shows you how shallow she is. And by the way, I am a fan of females being in the main event. That's why I put up a photo of Amanda Nunes kicking her ass in 48 seconds. She looked pitiful. A TKO in 48 seconds on December the 30th, 19, uh, 2016 by Nunes. A real fighter and Rousey is just a jobber. Speaking of jobbers, I read today that I read today a quote by Meltzer that shook me to the core. It goes as follows. There was a rumour going round WWE officials prior to Mania 34 that Rousey was going to make Triple H tap out to a Rambar finisher instead of Stephanie McMahon. And it appears the company went in the latter direction, specifically due to <coughs> specifically due to storyline continuity reasons, as Rousey attacks Stephanie's arm the next night on Raw, whereas Triple H is not a regular on-screen character and has disappeared for now. Miss Lousy was going to make Triple H tap out. This would have been as received as a cement truck full of pig shit being dumped on the WrestleMania 34 fans. God, folks. What was WWE thinking? Ronda Rousey is not a god of some kind, but a mere female ex-UFC failure that got a flat ass kicked twice on the way out. I demand that you fans respond to this crap that WWE is trying to lay on you by even thinking about her making Triple H tap out. God, this makes me sick. To help you get over your urge to vomit, please click on the link directly below to that my main man Mike found for found for me. Just a 60-second promo by me from Florida. And please tell me if anyone in the WWE can match my short promo, unscripted and loaded. BG. So he's very outspoken, as Dan's just put one through there, what Ron, we thought of Ronda Rousey. And it's not only Ronda Rousey, really. Uh, we've got comments he made about The Undertaker and John Cena 
that match at WrestleMania. Um, he said, he posted, so I don't know if The Undertaker has or will show up and answer seeing this challenge to a match at Mania 34. My question at this point, does anybody really care? With all due respect to both men, The Taker just turned 53 and he had a hip replacement and was pinned last year by Roman Reigns. He then piled up his gear in the middle of the ring and a very strong symbolic message that he was retiring. Cena's doing great in Hollywood and needs to stay there as so he is 15 years with the WWE. There is a cold, this is a cold of a match that one could possibly find. He also then went on to say, I hate to say about the most unique wrestler of all time, but it's true. As one fan responded when he heard a rumour that the Undertaker would go back to his old biker gimmick at Mania to avoid the symbolic pile of gear left in the ring last year at Mania. That, sir, is a very good one, actually. Honestly, when I hear Meltzer reported that last ride to the ring gimmick, I believe it. But he also left a horrible match in that ring and his lost to Reigns. Take was in so much pain from his hip, blown out, I personally could see it all over his face. Plus, it's overwhelming worse by Taker's absence of silence. Reigns and Lesnar are going all out, beating the crap at each other to get their match over. I don't care for either man, but you've got to admit, they're indeed working at the main event at WrestleMania 34, and Taker and Cena just another match. Truly disappointing. And then he moves on to Hulk Hogan. Graham talked about how Hogan's return to WWE is not possible because of the recent... Fabulous Moolah incident, where W removed the Fabulous Moolah name from the Women's Battle Royal. Graham also said that Hogan is too toxic old and Vincent Mann doesn't need him. Oh, sorry. Rumours. For all you fans who go back that far, this was the title to one of my favourite group's albums by Fleetwood Mac. The Marks thought they were breaking up, so this album was written to cash in on the rumours. Well, the biggest rumour that I've read in the last few days is will Hulk Hogan replace Daniel Bryan as GM for SmackDown? I can give you a hundred reasons why he will be a horrible choice and none of personal business. First, he is 65 years old or close to it. Second, the Hulkster is unable to talk about anyone else except himself. That is from a lifetime of cutting promos about himself. He's always in a hyper state when he's on camera and one cannot play a GM in that type of mindset, he will say brother too often while trying to conduct business in a backstage interview with talent. Well, he doesn't look like a person who would be in that type of role. Looks like Hulk Hogan, the entertainer. On, but now if you turn to tell me what I've missed or I think he could pull it off. Hogan is dead. <laughs> yeah. He's not actually dead. <laughs> no, he's not. No, We've yeah. not done anything to him, honestly. As far as the WWE is concerned, anyway... Take a good look on the face of Triple H at the Andre documentary premiere last Thursday in LA that was, pu- that was produced by HBO. Hogan is seen here pleading his case to H, but his words are falling on deaf ears. The WWE has released a statement that despite Hogan being at the Andre the Giant HBO premiere, he has no dates booked with their company. Hogan himself told TMZ at the LA airport on arrival in LA that he would not be at WrestleMania in New Orleans. Hogan also brought up the Mark Henry remark that Hogan needs to apologise to him in the W locker room. Hogan states he can't remember seeing Henry say this, but I remember reading those exact words last week in a quote from Henry. Hogan then said, I agree with you, Henry, as Mark is my boy. Wrong world, this is PC culture, as a black man is not your boy. So as far as I can see, Hogan will never be back with the WWE in any capacity. He is just too toxic. I agree with one of my Facebook fans who suggested William Regal be the better, be the new SmackDown of GM, a real gentleman with class. I've had some very nice conversations with Regal and find him very articulate, opposite of Hogan. 
Well, now to clarify a few things about Hulk Hogan and his attempt to convince Triple H and Vince that he should be brought back to the W fold. Yes, he has apologised, but even if he crawled the mile on his hands and knees across cut glass, it would not matter to Vince, as Vince does not need Hogan. And Hulk Hogan has, in his day and age, committed the unpardonable sin. Yes, as one fan said, Hulk Hogan was the one name when I was a kid that even if you never were wrestling, you'd have heard of Hulk Hogan before computers and social news, etc. But look, man, you're not a kid, and everyone has a computer and lives on social media, so you can't, you can't forget. Especially people like sponsors of Snickers, the big one for WWE. They even got Moolah's butt taken off as a name for the first female Royal Rumble at Mania next Sunday. Do so you think they want Hulk Hogan on that stage the way he threw the N-word around? Social media doesn't let you forget. I remember when Hogan first got hot. I was working for Crockett and was on a show with Ray in the locker room and all Flair could rant about was Hogan. He said, what is this shit about Hulk Hogan? What is he said, what is this shit about Hulk Hogan about? What is all this shit about Hulk Hogan about? <laughs> what is this shit about all Hulk Hogan about? What is all this shit about Hulk Hogan about? Everywhere I go, that is all I hear. Hogan this, Hogan that, and on and on. But that was then, this is now. <laughs> now you have a guy half his size in the photo below with the fans going wild for him. Hogan would never get that kind of reaction today, not even close. You think I went a little too far and hit Hulk Hogan when he was down with the hey boy line, really? Ask Colin Kaepernick if Hulk Hogan called him hey boy. All hell will break loose. Forget about being Booker. Being a GM for SmackDown two full years ago when SmackDown was in Phoenix and Triple H asked me to go down and cut some promos for the WWE archives. A nice long talk with Booker. It's ho- it's over for Hulk Hogan and the WWE. The truth can hurt and be bitter. He killed his own image. And Superstar Billy Graham, he's not bitter and twisted at all, is he? I think we'll leave it there for Superstar Billy Graham. Um, but very controversial. I mean, there's some stuff he said in the past uh, that I, at the moment, will leave alone. Bruno Sammartino. The living legend was WWE's longest reigning champion ever, holding the belt for a combined total of 12 years. <laughs> that just sounds ridiculous when you say it like that. He was also odds for the company for decades afterwards. After leaving WWE in the late 1990s, he became an outspoken critic and direction of Vincent Mann has taken to his beloved sport. He labelled the products as garbage and slammed steroid juice, Hulk Hogan and the attitude era, especially its top star Stone Cold Steve Austin. Bruno said, I didn't care for him because of his mouth. He was a very, very vulgar individual. Salmatina was known for his integrity as a defender of wholesome values. He hated WWE's an ultra-profane and sexualised product. He refused to hold a fame for several years, saying it would be hypocritical for him to accept, and then did it. Ultimate Warrior! Warrior? was one of the WWE's top names in the late 80s, early 90s, and to some, especially in his own mind, an equal star to the mighty Hulk Hogan. But Warrior had a notoriously turbulent with WWE. He left the company three times under controversial circumstances, over pay dispute in 91, for alleged steroid use in 92, and for no-showing events in 96. WWE later smeared his reputation with its self-destruction of the Ultimate Warrior DVD, a collection of interviews trashing the former champ for his unprofessionalism and lack of wrestling talent. Warrior fired back back with several lawsuits over the trademark of his gimmick and his treatment in a self-destruction DVD and stated Hulk Hogan in videos posted online. 
Warrior and WWE bear hugged and made up in the 2000. Warrior and WWE bear hugged and made up in 2014 when Warrior was inducted into the Hall of Fame three days before his sudden death. Up next, Stone Cold Steve Austin. What? Goddamn kid. Jesus Christ. The greatest feud in WWE history, Stone Cold vs. Vincent Mann, became a reality when Austin took his ball and went home in June 2002. After his botched heel run and the transition from Red, Not, Red Hot Attitude Era to the much less Red Hot Roof of Aggression Era, Austin was frustrated with his spot. His character was diminished with his role in a woeful Evasion Alliance storyline, and he found himself relegated to a mid-cast spot at WrestleMania 18. The final straw came when he scheduled him to lose to the next biffing Brock Lesnar in the King Ring Qualifier on Raw. A huge match with no build-up. He no-showed the event, which Brutes Pritchard has since revealed upset a lot of people backstage, including The Undertaker, and was written off WWE TV. Vincent Mann criticised Stone Cold Steve Austin, saying that he had some apologising and explains to do if he wants to return. Austin eventually came back after being fined a quarter of a million dollars and wrestled his last ever match, facing his old foe, Rock at the following year's WrestleMania. And China. Yeah, let's, let's finish on China. A few people have. As Triple H's on-screen bodyguard and real-life girlfriend, China was a major star, major star, of the Attitude Era, next only Stone Cold and The Rock in terms of mainstream crossover potential. <coughs> but, China's res- but China's relationship with WWE ended abruptly in 2001 with conflicting reports about why she left the company. The popular rumour is that she was shunted out after former boyfriend Triple H began a relationship with Stephanie McMahon, though others have disputed that. WWE all but erased China from its history when she appeared in several porn movies, including one, f- including one freeway scene with actors portraying Vince and Steph. Have you seen that one? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, what? Yeah, no. Well, China who she suffered. F- China. <laughs> well, not su- in China. Back door into China. Illegal entrance into China. Six men fit in China. <laughs> China, who suffered from depression and substance abuse issues, later accused Triple H of hitting her during their relationships, which he vehemently delied, denied. He said, I am not going to pac also a former boyfriend, recalled how she apologised to Triple H for her accusations at Roddy Piper's... <laughs> Roddy Piper's... <laughs> Fucking, why are you laughing at that bit more? <laughs> for her accusations at Roddy Piper's funeral... But WWE weren't interested in reopening communications. She passed away in 2016. Rest in peace, China. And that is it for Controversial Characters Part 3. Dan, what's a, what you thought of the episode and what's been the most fucked up thing, do you reckon? I think the New Jack, that part was quite fucked up and that Mushta got stabbed and all. Yeah, mass transit, yeah. Mas- no, the one that got stabbed. Stabbed? Oh, uh, <laughs> oh yeah, Bruiser Brody. That's the one, yeah, Bruiser Brody. <laughs> <coughs> I forgot we did that. Yeah, I mean, we've had a bit of everything, really. Rape allegations, murders. Uh, we didn't really keep up the murder count after a while. We kind of lost track after the first kind of 20. Um, we do, you know, controversial characters. And we will be back for part four. But before we do come back from part four, I promise you, our next kind of episode like this... We'll be bringing back the top ten most ridiculous characters. We will be doing that. Uh, most sorry, the most ridiculous moments that we will be bringing that WWE. We'll be bringing that back. I'll say it again. We'll be bringing back the WNR's most ridiculous moments. We'll have a bit of fun before we get serious again. That's what we always like. But Dan, it's 175 episodes. 
So looking back at it, did you ever think we'd get to 175? <laughs> I didn't think we'd get to episode five. <laughs> <laughs> we had, you know, some anchors that we've cut off along the way. <laughs> yeah, that's the right expression, I would say, yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, we've managed to rock it into something that I believe is successful. Oh, honestly, I, I cannot believe it. You know, you, you start back in 2015 and you do it and you think, oh, maybe this is, like you said, episode five, we do a couple of episodes. But it's you, just you to stick by it for so long. I don't know what's wrong with you, but you get with me. Despite having numerous different girlfriends in the time. I know. And such a big social life. We still get time to do the podcast. So don't worry, people who love us and want to listen. If we don't do it, it's Dan's fault. Remember that, because I've always got time on my hands. Uh, the WL podcast is something that we love. It's, it is like a little... But well, you need something to do in between masturbating. Yeah, I know. Well, it's a little baby I've created, the WL podcast. You know, we look at it, and it is loved. Uh, what's great news as well, we just want to thank everybody for all the live weekend for SummerSlam. It was our most, it was our most successful weekend of all time. Our biggest weekend. We had some big ones for WrestleMania and stuff like that. But we had 20,000 for the Saturday night takeover, which is the most we've had for a takeover event. And 2,000 on Sunday night. So we added a couple extra, but they, they basically stuck around to listen to us there. We will be back for the November shows and everything like that. But if you'd asked me, would we be to 175, I would have said probably no. I would have said no. Cause I wouldn't know what we had done. And now we've got the kind of monthly schedule that we do. Uh, obviously, coming up in 2019, we'll change things up a little bit. Because, you know what I mean? It's it's good. You're based on having a W Network view every month. I think that's obvious. And it's nice looking back in the Attitude Era. But I think there's a few things we could bring into it. People have been talking about ECW. I've had an idea about TakeOver events as well uh, for next year. So it's all these things that will we'll change as we go along. As everybody's happy about it. Uh, if I'm looking at the episodes... Is there any episodes I'm not happy with? Is there episodes I'm happy with? I've got to say, I'm, I'm happy with, with most of it, to be fair. I mean, if you go back and listen to the first, what, 25, 40, might be a little bit ropey there, but I think since then, it's 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 been good. You know, it's kind of a professional sound to it. Uh, there's a lot of, even editing-wise with stuff, I'm doing a lot, not as much editing right now because we're, the way we're doing it, it's basically like it's for a live show anyway, so... That well, we've we've gone from the first few episodes to, you know, basically making things up off the top of our head and not really having anything planned and thought out and just, you know, going with the flow to having it typed up onto paper to now we're doing it off our tablet. So, you know, it's kind of evolving as we go along. James has sacrificed two microphones. <laughs> you know, I've I'm, this microphone's on its last leg, so, you know, something's... I'm going to have to get a new one of these. Uh, you know, we may even go up to having clip-on microphones mm. and just changing this up and that. But, you know, it is all... We wouldn't have invested this money and time into it if it wasn't for yeah. what we've got out there. And, and, I, and I would challenge anybody right now as well. Because, because, like I said, we do it for everybody listening. Everybody sends us comments, and that's great. Uh, but I, I would challenge anybody with any episode... Or any series or, or anything like this. I might be wrong with podcasts, but we haven't had uh, a podcast off yet. As in every single podcast, and you you go back and listen 
to all 175, even more than that. It, it's been you and I from day one, from from now. Not we haven't missed one out. There's not been anything. Every single podcast has had us on, and I don't think there's any other show, anything else out there, out there that you could say the two guys have been the main leads throughout. But you say 175. We've got podcast extras. We've got. <laughs> yeah. You know, everything else thrown in, part two, part three, you know, so we've got to be closing in on actual 200 releases. Yeah, I mean, we are, I think, yeah, I think we're over 200 a little bit, if you're counting talking BS and stuff like this. But uh, with the WNR 200, that's the difference because, you know, as WNRs, episodes are different for me to WNRs, and people might (laughs) need to explain him for that, but WNRs in its own self. And then, of course, you know, uh, the episodes. Episode-wise, we, we've done more. But for WNRs, we'll, and that's our next big thing as well. And it's 25 episodes away. And it seems like a long time, but it'll be here before we know it. It'll be the WNR 200. And I I still don't believe we're going to get there yet. So I'm not going to think about it yet. Uh, we've got a lot of things coming up on the podcast as well. Of course, we've got uh, the May Young Classic, which starts in September. Which uh, we're going to bring you uh, the first couple of episodes for the first round and then obviously a wrap up of the second round quarterfinal semis and then it's not until my birthday October 28th that the actual May Young Classic final is on so we've got a long way to wait for that we're going to have WCW coming up in September of course we've got um, WCW Full Brawl as our pay-per-view which is going to be War Games uh, stuff to look forward to though in October we're going to have Halloween special we're going to have a new ha- Halloween Havoc 1998 in November if we're looking at pay-per-view wise and stuff like obviously Survivor Series but we'll be looking at uh, Survivor Series 1998 and that's Deadly Games uh, in December we've got Starcade, of course Goldberg Streak and, and stuff like this uh, the Christmas specials New Year specials so with summer like we, and of course the live weekends in, uh, uh, in November as well so there's still plenty more to come you know we are really just warming up here you know it'd be fantastic to in you know episode three uh, wnr 350 175 episodes time and thinking about what we've done uh but it's been great we could do without of course everybody listening but i couldn't do without dan either so you know i'd like to thank him for being along the way for me there it's not goodbye for anybody (laughs) (laughs) i couldn't do it without james because i have no idea how to edit it and (laughs) we're in his house so you know i'll be can I can I come in and use your podcasting <laughs> stuff, please? <laughs> well, if we we've you know we do it together, and not I think that and no, not at all exactly, and, and that's the thing that Dobbinar has always been. But that's it now. Enough looking back. We're going to look forward to, like we say, to everything that we got. And our next episode, Dobbinar one seven six, will of course be. It will be WWE versus WCW, like I said, Full Brawl, 1998, and we've got a couple of episodes of Raw and uh, a Nitro there. And then we've got look, May Young, got Hell in a Cell coming up at the end of the month. Of course, in October as well, it's the Super Show and the first ever women's pay-per-view. So much there. But don't forget, if you want to let us know what you think of the controversial characters, what you think of our last 175 WNRs, or anything for the future, you can contact us on Twitter at WWNetworkView or... At Vince McDan, WWE. I'm at John Score Rollins. Because who Google platform? Because who the Google platforms? Everybody, we are WWE Review on Google Plus. Send us an email at WNR Podcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook. Yes, Facebook. Come and find our page and give us a like with the WWE Network Review Podcast. Or you can come with me as a friend. I am Vince McDan. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, WWE Network Review Podcast. We've got clips on. We've got clips up on there, and of course, podcasts go at the same time on YouTube. We do other places like SoundCloud. 
on your phone. Don't forget to subscribe to our music maker Diddly on SoundCloud. We're on Spreaker Radio. We're going to have live shows in November. Stitcher Radio and iTunes. We can download, subscribe, rate and review there. But that is it for the WNR 175 and 175 episodes. Dan, what is one word to sum up the last 175 WNRs? Glorious! (laughs) Well, until the next one, I have been James Rowlands and as always I was joined by... Chris Benoit's Innocent. (laughs) Leave it in, I dare you. I will. I'm joined by... Dan White. And that is it. Thanks for listening, buddy. We truly appreciate every one of you. Bye. Bye.